Dopey Podcast. Dopey Podcast. Well, Dopey now podcast. is the time for the Dopey Podcast. Dopey podcast. Where you call in and Dopey put podcast. all your life on blast. And you call Dopey in podcast. and talk about your past. Because your Dopey life was furious, hardcore, and fast. So Dopey now podcast. is the time for the Dopey Podcast. It's the Dopey Podcast, the Dopey Podcast, yo. This is the Dopey Podcast. This is the Dopey Podcast. Now if your life was pure, just hardcore and fast, you feel like you want to put your life on blast. Just call up the show and I talk about your past. Cause now is the time for the Dopey Podcast. It's the Dopey Podcast, the Dopey Podcast, yo. This is the Dopey Podcast. This is the Dopey Podcast. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oral Recovery. They're located in sunny Southern California and was founded by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission to help drug addicts and alcoholics to get better by treating them with compassion and connection rather than control. Their team has many decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. They make sure your treatment is comfortable, your detox is comfortable, which anybody who's kicking anything wants to hear. Trust me. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, yoga, equine therapy, surfing, and of course, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. Check them out at ororecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Sober Buddy. What is Sober Buddy? Well, I say my friends at Sober Buddy because the people that run Sober Buddy are actually my friends and I help them. I am a consultant on the Sober Buddy team and I run the Sober Buddy Zoom on Wednesdays at 1. Sober Buddy is an app, it is a community, it is a platform, it is an aid, it is a tool to help you get and maintain sobriety. It's only $12 a month. Now, I don't know what kind of coffee you drink. That could be four cups of coffee, maybe it's five cups of coffee. It could be two cups of coffee if you're drinking big expensive coffees, but it's worth it. They also do a free 30-day trial, so go to YourSoberBuddy.com Download the app, join the community, and come to our Zooms. Check them out again on the App Store and the Google Play Store or at www.YourSoberBuddy.com. And come on Wednesday. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by The Phoenix. The Phoenix is another app, but it's a much different kind of app. The good people who created The Phoenix believe that dealing with addiction Friends, families, allies, and supporters find strength through meaningful and fun activities. Through programming at gyms, yoga studios, hiking the arts, and music, you can find and connect with other members who are in recovery, sober, curious, and family members. The only cost of attendance to do any of the Phoenix's stuff, and they do pickleball, and they do crazy hikes, and they do CrossFit, and they do yoga— is 48 hours of sobriety. That's it. I have been to a bunch of Phoenix things, and they are good people. It is a lot of fun, and it is a great way for uh, addicts and alcoholics to get active and get together. Check them out at thephoenix.org slash findaclass. 
that's find-a-class, or thephoenix.org slash movement. Or you could just go to thephoenix.org. It is an incredible organization, an incredible group of people, and most importantly, it's incredible because it's free. So go check out thephoenix.org. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave, and I'm trying something new. I am recording this on video for Patreon, because we're making a big push in Patreon. I've decided we are going to do a Just for Today every day on Patreon. There will be something on Patreon every day, so if you're a crazy dopey freak, Go to Patreon. It's www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. I am wearing one of our new Dopey Mets hats. We got a Dopey Mets hat made, which is, I mean, I'm not a big Mets fan, but it's pretty cool. We got a Dopey Dodgers hat made, which is very slick. I'm not a big Dodgers fan either, but there's a lot of Los Angelinos in the Dopey Nation. And we got a Dopey Bad Brains hat, which is also pretty sweet. So check them out. I will post them on Instagram if you want one. You can Venmo me those. You know, you buy a hat with stickers, it's 30 bucks. Whatever. If you want to buy our clothes, you go to dopeypodcast.com. I know it's confusing, but support the show. Don't be a fucking stranger. Support the show. And this week on the show is a very, very special guest. The guy's name is Dante Ross. He wrote an incredible book called Son of the City. And I want to give a major shout-out, big thanks to the one and only B. Getz of the Up Full Life podcast. B. Getz was so helpful in my Dante research and going over shit. He knows his stuff. If you're a music head, check out the Up Full Life podcast. And uh, big ups to my friend B. Getz. I got this, uh, should I read the very complimentary uh, email? I will. It's such a complimentary email, I have to read it. I don't usually read such complimentary emails, but this one I'm reading. Dave, I don't like podcasts. I don't have the listening comprehension skills or attention span for them to be entertaining, but I started listening to Dopey a few months ago, and now I like a podcast. Yours. I listen to the new episode every week and listen to old episodes starting at the beginning during the week. A few weeks ago, I listened to episode 38 with Modi on Thursday. Then that weekend, I listened to episode 411, where you happen to refer back to the Modi episode. This synchronicity stuff happens a lot when I listen. I listened to you as a guest on another podcast this week. I gotta tell you, man, you're an excellent host. Listening to someone else's podcast after listening to Dopey almost exclusively for months made it so clear to me how brilliant you are at hosting. Thank you. You are emotionally attuned, self-aware, curious. Nice. You listen to people deeply and with sensitivity, even while you notoriously interrupt literally everyone. It's true. You want everyone to have fun and walk away feeling a little better than they did at the beginning, including the listener. That's true, I do. Thank you. More synchronicity. I, I shouldn't read this. It's so it's so self 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 aggrandizing, aggrandizing, grandizing, not grandulizing, grandizing. More synchronicity. I was reminded how great you are, and then today I'm listening to episode 39, where you talk about feeling like you're a terrible interviewer. That's really why I'm writing to tell episode 39, Chris and Dave, that today Dave really is as Chris 
as good as Chris thought he was, and Dopey really is as special as you both felt like it could be. Man, that that gives me the chills. Stay strong and fucking toodles for Chris. I remember that conversation with Chris where I was like, it's because when I was a kid and I did interviews, I was so high and not researched that um, I was terrible at it. And Chris was saying what a good interviewer he thought I was. And I was like, well, I, I'm especially a good interview when I'm constantly interviewing you, meaning Chris. So the first 143 episodes are basically a very, very long interview of Chris, which is why they're so special and good. Now I'm going to read another one. Uh, oh, shit, I should say this. The only reason I think it's okay that I did the self-aggrandizing or grandulizing uh, email is because today is my birthday, and I already threw a fit. I got into a fight with Linda that I that I wasn't being treated <laughs> well enough for my birthday, and I regret it. So, you know, we can only be as good as we are. I need, I need to find a way to practice acceptance and humility and gratitude because I have such a good life, and sometimes I just feel like it's not good enough, and, and it is good enough. So if anyone ever feels that way, just know you're not the only one. And I'm embarrassed, you know what I mean? Like, I'm such a baby on my birthday. It's ridiculous. It's such it's I like, I need to be, like, I need everything the way I want it, and I've always been like this. So... Maybe this is my 49th birthday. So maybe for my 50th birthday, I can actually be cool. So that's my uh, my birthday confession. Really, it all happened because yesterday I actually went to Katz's and I rarely go to Katz's and I went to Katz's and I picked up the sweet new dopey hats and I'm walking back to my dad's because we have to do the dopey, the Patreon sober buddy Zoom and I just and I'm running late, so I go get the train at West Fourth Street, and I'm listening to the good old Grateful Dead podcast. I don't know why I'm giving you guys all the details, and I took a weird step at the West Fourth Street train station, and my ankle rolled, you know, kind of the way Julius Randall's ankle rolled. Only I wasn't playing basketball; I was walking, and I felt like I couldn't walk. And I walked, and I got home, and I was in so much pain. And I came home last night, and I was in pain, and. I think it just, you know, it's, you know, big baby time. King baby time over here. So I want to give, I, I, I've already apologized to my family and uh, I'm apologizing to you guys and letting you know that even with some time and some, some old age, you can still be a big baby, which I still am from time to time. All right, I'm going to read another thing. And it's another like past, an email kind of from the past. Because when you're listening to Dopey in the past and you write me in the future, you're really writing from the past. Here we go. Hey, Dave, I'm about five years behind the present in listening to the podcast, and I imagine that there are now five layers of assistance and interns between you and the email address. Yeah, right. There's one, Claire. Shout out to Claire. But I hope this reaches you. I started listening to Dopey from the beginning a few months ago, and now I'm in August of 2018, and I am surprisingly devastated. That was when Chris had died. I came to Dopey through last day, so I already knew what was going to happen. And the first two and a half years of the show have been like the long lead up to a joke you know the punchline of. Only it's not a joke and it's not a punchline. It's a tragedy and a punch in the gut. I've been meaning to reach out for ages, but somehow it's feeling like I need support. Five years after the fact that finally got me to do it. Of course, it's always about me. Ha ha. 
I just wrote a, r- a long rambling email about my own dopey stories, some of my using history, my journey into recovery, two and a half years clean in NA, similarities between myself and Chris, Ivy Coke lover, uh, too smart for my own good, yak, yak, yak. Uh, and you lost my wife and family, got them back. A little rant about how Alina Lodge, that super restrictive long-term treatment facility, Chris fled right before he drank the Blue Mountain Powerade blast bottle of GHB in Harlem. It isn't really so shitty and probably saved my life, meaning Alina Lodge, or at least got me set on the path to have my life saved, even though it is a weird fucking place. And many, many more rambling thoughts. But then it turned out my internet connection had disconnected and my draft wasn't saved and my message was unsent. And I realized when it all came down to it is that I'm super sad and craving a connection with you and somehow Chris and maybe the Dopey Nation. I was quite happy just listening along on my own until now when I feel kind of alone in my grief for a guy I never met and never even listened to until years after his death. I'm going to get more engaged with the nation. I think that'll be good. But would love for you to reach out if you feel like it or able. I didn't reach out. This is me reaching out. I love the show, and I'm so glad you kept it going. I feel like it serves another really important purpose and undoubtedly teaches people, reaches people who aren't ready to be reached another way. Of course, I have no idea what the last five years have been like, but I'm chipping away and will eventually catch up. And if you're still doing dopey voicemails and emails from non-celebrities, maybe I'll send you a story too. Some of them are pretty dopey. Anyway, thanks for all you do and stay strong. I really want to say toodles, James. Thank you, James. Yes, go to the Dopey Nation. Go to the Dopey Nation Zoom. Dopey Nation does like 25 Zooms a week. The ID is 804-300-586. The password is toodles. Join the Dopey Nation on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram, and you will be more connected to uh, the Dopey Nation. And I will write you back, James. And thank you. And now I owe you a pair of Dopey socks. And there are 200 pairs of new style Dopey socks traveling across. uh, They're leaving Alaska at 3 in the morning last night. So I think I'm going to get them, I don't know, tomorrow. So you can get some socks, James. Uh, Annie, you can get some socks. And if anyone is owed Dopey socks, just remind me because we're out. And I didn't save any of the old ones. I don't have a pair of the Big Bird socks or the Praying Mantis socks, which is very stupid. I didn't save any of the beanies. Like, I didn't save anything. So um, maybe I'll just have to reorder all of those things. And sometimes we all just need a little bit of support, which is why this episode of Dopey is brought to you by BetterHelp. Therapy is an incredible tool for helping me not be so crazy. I cannot wait to see my therapist and go over what a baby I have been. And sometimes I do not think of myself, and sometimes I think of myself too much, but therapy always helps me find balance. It finds helps me find perspective, and it helps me try to live my best version of life. And I know that with balance and with acceptance, I can get there, and therapy is an incredible tool for getting there, so if you're looking to start therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dopeypodcast today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Podcast to help you get more balance. Also, we started a nonprofit foundation called the Dopey Foundation, and so far we are assisting people to get into treatment. So if you know anybody who's really struggling that needs to go to treatment, please have them reach out. They need to know, though, that if they want to go to treatment, they need to be willing to not go to the five-star spot. They, they need to just be willing to go where we can get them to go. So if you know someone who needs help to get help, send them our way and we can help them, but willingness is key. We're also sending out uh, fentanyl test kits and we're sending out Narcan. So if you want any of that stuff, just write me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in getting a spiffy set of dopey socks and you don't want to pay for them, send in a funny voicemail or an email and you too can get the the really snazzy new dopey sock. Or you can just Venmo me 15 bucks to Dopey Podcast and uh, leave your address. And when they come in, I will ship them out. Also, we have an incredible partnership with uh, CustomStickers.com. CustomStickers.com makes incredible stickers. They make them cheap. They make them fast. And because of our partnership, we're sending out free Dopey stickers. If you want a Dopey sticker, just write me. Now, that's one Dopey sticker. If you want a pack of Dopey stickers, sign up for Patreon, or you can buy a pack for 10 bucks. One, I'm happy to send out for free. Again, write a email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com, and I will send you a Dopey sticker. Or if you want to buy them, let me know. That, that's better. It's better when you buy them. But customstickers.com makes incredible stickers. Check them out at customstickers.com. Save 20% if you want to make your own super cool stickers by using the promo code Dopey 20. I know a bunch of you guys in the audience are my age, which is 49 as of today. And if you're a 49-year-old and you loved hip-hop music, then our guest today should be incredibly meaningful to you. He was meaningful to me mostly because, I mean, he he worked on most of the records I listened to in high school. His first A&R experience was with De La Soul on Three Feet High and Rising. And on Three Feet High and Rising, they, they called Dante a scrub. Dante is a scrub. not getting a haircut either scrub <laughs> and i've heard him talk about and that's from uh can you keep a secret from de la soul's three feet high and rising which you should get if you don't have it's an incredible record and i've heard dante talk about being called a scrub and he hated being called a scrub but when me and my friends heard that part we decided that we were scrubs and we like to be scrubby and it became a whole thing and uh when I made my uh, my music show with my friend Brad, we called the production company Scrub Life Productions. And I don't know, I, I had this vision of scrubbiness being an amazing thing. So to have Dante Ross on this week's show where the, the scrub aesthetic came to me, and the scrubby aesthetic is definitely a part of Dopey, like it or not, it was, it was fascinating. He doesn't really get too into the scrubby factor. He doesn't really take so much umbrage with De La Soul uh, or being called a scrub on our show, but it's interesting. Are you guys scrubby? Can you relate to the scrubby aesthetic? If so, send an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Being scrubby is being sweet. It's being humble. 
in my opinion. I like I've always loved to be scrubby. Anyway, before we get to Dante Ross, I just want to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by Lusamira. Lusamira is the first FDA-approved non-opioid, non-addictive treatment for the relief of multiple symptoms of opioid withdrawal. And we all know opioid withdrawal sucks. If you are an opiate addict and you want some additional help, check out Lusamira. Lusamira can cause serious side effects, including low blood pressure, slow heart rate, and fainting. Watch for symptoms of low blood pressure or heart rate, including dizziness, lightheadedness, or feeling faint at rest or when quickly standing up. If you experience these symptoms, call your healthcare provider right away. After a period of not using opioid drugs, you can become more sensitive to the effect of opioids if you start using them again. This may increase your risk of overdose and death. Tell your healthcare provider if you take benzodiazepines, barbiturates, tranquilizers, sleeping pills, or drink alcohol, as taking these with Lusamira can cause more serious side effects. The most common side effects of Lusamira include low blood pressure or symptoms of low blood pressure, such as lightheadedness, slow heart rate, dizziness, sleepiness, and dry mouth. Lusamira is available by prescription, and only a healthcare provider can decide whether the product is appropriate for you. To find a provider who is right for you and to get more information about Lusamira, visit lusamira.com or call 1-833-L-U-C-E-M-Y-R-A. All right, that's enough of the ads. That's enough of the beginning. For all you hip-hop heads, put your head against the speaker. When he talks about an act on the show, I recommend stopping the show and playing the records. It's an, it's an incredible past. It's an incredible story. He's an incredible figure in the history of hip-hop and music, a New Yorker. The book is called Son of the City. He is a mensch, very sweet guy, super honored to have met him, Dante Ross. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. We're <laughs> at my dad's apartment. I'm with somebody like... I don't know. You, you in a lot of ways you had the life I wish I had. His name is Dante Ross. He's a producer, he's a legendary A&R man. He's a former Stussy model. He's a great author. Welcome to Dopey. Yeah, what's up, Dave? How are you? I'm good. And then last time Dante was supposed to come in in the fall. I was supposed to do this show like five times. I fuck up every time. Dante was supposed to come in at the fall. And then I, what's the, what's the open mic Eagle podcast? Called? Um, what had happened was, what, what had, had happened. happened was, and I talked about it on the show. One of the greatest podcasts I yeah, ever open heard. Open mic Eagle's great, man. He's really good. He's fucking good. He's good because he gives you space. Right. And it's like, there's a couple of podcasters. I, I, I talked to like him and combat Jack, like you trust those guys. So you can tell them shit. And they kind of like, they don't like pride. They kind of just let you kind of do your thing. They were both. They're both really good. And I've had a other couple guys who are intrusive. I'm totally intrusive. <laughs> I'm totally annoying and intrusive. Jew and you. Yeah, I can't. I can't help myself. There's nothing else. But, and by the way, I'm a Jew, so I can say that. You can. You can say whatever you want. So fucking he Dante's supposed to come on the show. I just listened to you on Toby Morris's podcast. Oh, that was like the longest podcast in the history of the world. It's really good. He's my really good friend too. So that's why me and him were like really tight. Toby, like I, I I'm not an H two O fan. I'm not, not an H two O fan. It just yeah, wasn't yeah, my thing. Yeah. 
I, I was trying to get him on Dopey. He ignored me. And I, yeah. you know, I'm crazy. I yeah, resentful. I'm sick. Yeah. And, uh, but no, I, I was like, fuck him. I, I, I like, and my big move, I'm unfollowing. It's so crazy. How to, and Toby, like, if you know him, he's the nicest dude. So like saying fuck you, Toby is like so crazy. Uh, he's such a, he's like a hippie. Like, you know what I mean? He seems very sweet. And I was like, he's I'm looking nice. on the podcast you're on. And, and this is after I listened to 13 episodes of what had happened was, and I listened it's to. only eight. But Either way, it eight. feels like forty. But it's it's long and it's thorough. And I also let's just say this right away: Dante Ross's book, "Son of the City," came out last week. Yep. It's uh incredible. Eleven hour on Audible, but better. Eleven hours on Audible. Wow, it's incredible. How was recording it? It was cool. I had this producer whose name is I'm forgetting her name. I'm such a jerk. Doesn't because she was so sweet. And she walked me through it, and she was so cool and encouraging, and she's the nice, goddamn, I can't remember her name. She was wonderful, though, and she, I mean, she, like, was really cool. I did one day of overdubs, I think it was four days, and she, um, I was like, how'd I do? She was like, you're, like, better than 90% of the people who do this shit. And she was like, do you want to do this, like, for other people's books? I was like, yeah. And now I can't remember her name because I'm a jerk-off. But she was fucking cool, and it was really, it was, you know, you hate hearing your own voice. That's the worst part of it, but the experience, because... Of this woman whose name I'm forgetting guided me through it was really cool. It is such she a had iced coffee for me every morning. She was tremendous. It was such a good listen. Such a fucking good listen. But the day that you were supposed to come on, you text me and you're like, Oh shit, I ran into Black Thought on the street and you got into some conversation with Black Thought from the roots. Yes. And then Black Thought says And, and that's I, that's what he said to me that day. I imagine that's what happened. Is that true? It's true. He says Dante Ross's presence is ubiquitous throughout the evolution of this culture. He's played such an integral role in realizing so many of the most iconic and meaningful moments. I consider him to be the Forrest Gump of hip hop. And then I go interview Search, and he says he's the Forrest Gump of hip hop. Search a jerk off. Uh, oh, shots fired. Shots Sir, fired. I just went on Search's show. Search came to DopeyCon. He sure was he supposed was. to come on for five minutes. He stayed on for 20. But he's a sweet guy. No, nah, he's a self-serving asshole. Wow. But, you know. You're well, nice to him in the book, though. I, you know, look, like, there's things that transpired after the book that made me really um, feel weird about him. So, look, I have a lot of history with the guy. I wish I could love him, but I'm going to choose to love him from a distance. That's what you say in the book. I got to love him from a distance. Love and tolerance is our code. You know, that's what it is. Like, you know. But I keep the focus on me. Sorry I called you a jerk-off. You're not a jerk-off. I just got to stay over here when you're over there. I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. And Dante is from Manhattan, which I, I love. Born in San Fran. I am. My, my New York story starts in California. Break it down. I was born in San Francisco. My parents were like counterculture, like hippies. You know, they like, they like predate hippies. They're like beatniks. And you know, they lived in Mexico for a long time. And they came back to America after all this tragic shit happened with my mom. She... You know, I had a brother who died a crib death, so they came back to America and landed in San Francisco, and it was like it went from like the summer of love to like Altamont, and like you know, a couple of years it was fucked up. And um, my mom was like, "I'm out," and she moved back to New York, and my dad spiraled into like drug addiction, pretty much. And I, I didn't see him for I, I saw him a couple, you know, after age of seven, he went six or seven. He was MIA for like seven years or so. He was using heroin and speed? Speed, mostly. But I think heroin, I think whatever was coming down the street, he was fucking down for it. And your mom was a, was an alcoholic? My mom was an alcoholic. Uh, uh, yeah. She was like, it's, you know, like an alcoholic, like in the classic sense where you're sober for three months, you're on the wagon, and then bong. 
You know what I mean? She never really could get it together until she got older. No 12-step business. Later, yeah. Oh, she did? Yeah. yeah. Did you did you pick up on the 12-step thing from your mom? Um, I did not, but my mom made a very graceful uh, 12-step amends, you know, uh, to you. amends to me, a ninth step. Yeah, and I didn't know it at the time. And she was like, I just want to like, cause, you know, I want to like, I'm so sorry for everything, you know, and all these things. And is there anything that like, I, I, you know, did I forget to say? And I was like, mom, whatever. I love you. Like, don't worry about it. How old were you then? I was in my thirties. It was right when Whitey Ford saying the blues came out. So I was almost 40. I guess I was, it was, I was 39, I think 38. So <laughs> I, I grew up in this apartment, uh, but I went to elementary school fucking and high school. I went to the same school from age four to age 17 what school hunter oh, we're, so we're young smart MC kid. when you're a smart kid we're, what's his face lin-manuel i was smart but something went wrong that's the best high school in all, uh, the best school in all of new york city and it's free right yeah yeah my, my friend's daughter went there i, I did not get into hunter so but you got into tech i got into brock science too but i went to tech because it's closer to my house but more importantly you got to grow up like streetwise on the lower east side look yeah. at me Look what happened to me. I didn't get to be so. It's funny you say that because I know all these kids from Chelsea Projects. Yeah, yeah, and I used yeah. to play basketball Hudson Guild. Sure, that's where I went to nursery. And those school. kids, those kids are pretty street. I know. Those kids are pretty tough kids. I you didn't... know, my first, I had an apartment on Ninth Avenue, right off Twenty Fifth Street, no, okay, Twenty Fourth Street, right next to the bodega that's still there, a third floor walk up, and I lived there for maybe two or three years. But that was the the scene of many many uh, a crime. What era was that? It was in the middle of the hip-hop era, like the early 90s. And it was like a dumpy apartment, but it was like $825 a month, and I just didn't want to let it go. And to this day, I'm mad I let it go. Of course. rent-stabilized. Right. I let the thing You'd go. still have this spot. When you came up, it's on the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. You're the white kid. You said- I was you, one of them. There was one other kid on my block. And like you basically- I think as a you know as a middle class Jewish kid from Chelsea who wound up getting yeah. bussed to that smart school. I might have mugged you when we were kids. Probably exactly. Was a pretty bad kid. So so describe for Dopey Nation like what it's like on the Lower East Side in the seventies. Whoa, it's fucking buck wild. First of all, like you know, it's mostly Hispanic, like you know, like Puerto Rican, Dominicans hadn't come to New York yet, at mm. least not to the Lower East Side, and it was like a drug supermarket at one point. It kind of took a turn. And it just was fucked up. It was pretty wild. I had a like big dope dealer dude in my building. I'd see people nodding out, gun gunfights in the street. It was like it was a pretty fucking crazy block. It was a wild place to grow up. But you know, I was also one of those kids who I was outside all the time because my mom was like, you know, on again, off again alcoholic. So I'm like, I don't really want to be in my house. She's like a manic depressive. So as much as I could be outside, I was outside. And we had a crazy group of kids. There was eight of us, I think, in our little crew. And one of them showed up at my booker in at Barnes and Nobles. I no hadn't way. seen him for 40 years. But I, he found me during the pandemic. And he's a school teacher. His name is Lefty. Shout out to Lefty. Lefty was a wild dude. He And he was he's doing good, man. And he actually lives on 28th Street. He lives right over here, too. He was on 28th in, in uh, middle-income houses over there. Yeah, man. He was, like, right down the block from here. He might live in these same houses, man. He's He lives in those ones over there. But he's... He uh he did good in my other friend Russell. I don't my friend William Dickerson, he he's somewhere, he's a black kid we grew up with. And uh I think this kid Jose is around somewhere, Jose Ortiz. I think he's like a substance abuse counselor or some shit. His brother went to jail for like twenty years. I don't know where his other brothers are, but there was there was eight of us and and uh we were all pretty fucking crazy. Were you guys I mean, drinking, smoking weed at what nah, point? No, we were too young. 
We, we tried to smoke weed when we were kids, but it didn't really work out. I think we had like fake weed. I don't know what the fuck we were doing. We drank a little bit. We were just too young. I didn't really get in that until I was like 12 or 13. And by then I had moved. I'd moved out of off the block because the block got too crazy. Everyone moved. We were like one of the last families left. Like my mom didn't want to move, but we it was just too much. We had to go. And you went to Brooklyn. We went to, well, we didn't first, first, okay, Street, right? a couple of things. We went a couple of places. We started on 9th Street. Then we went to 2nd Street. Then we moved to Brooklyn to Avenue U. God, I don't really know why. My sister had a boyfriend who lived out there. She lived in, in Sheepshead Bay with him. Nice neighborhood. We moved out there. We had this beautiful apartment. Maybe the nicest place we ever lived. It was like three bedroom, like huge living room, dining. It was, it was huge. It was really nice. Like really nice apartment. It was the whole floor. And then of course, um. My mom, being my mom, fucked it all up. She decided we're going. She got her degree to, to teach a Mont- Montessori degree, and she decided we're going to move to New Mexico, which is baffling to me. We go to New Mexico. My mom fucks it all up. Goes on a binge drinking, and she gets fired. We limp back to New York on a Greyhound, and we're homeless. And we get an apartment on Thirteenth Street and Avenue B. It's so weird. And then we live there until we move back to Brooklyn when um maybe. 14 or 15 we're homeless again for a while and i um she went to rhode island to be with my sister who was in the military and i stayed with my friends in brooklyn then i went to california and spent the summer with my dad and i came back and she coincidentally got an apartment across the street on avenue U from where we used to live but it was like the size of a postage stamp so that was that was my uh my adolescence so you know if you have an adolescence like that with an alcoholic parent, there's really no telling you shit. Cause you know, like I, I you know, she, you know, you know, he always knew some bullshit was coming. So at one point, I just stopped here. I was I'm just gonna do what I want to do. At what point was the story where your dad's like kicking and your mom's like? I was on Second Street. I was about six or seven years. Old. I think I was six years old, five years old. Yeah, I was a kid. And tell and and your mother did not love the cops. And my mom hated cops. <laughs> I, I was raised not to fuck with cops. My dad had got his eye permanently damaged by the cops when he was running for mayor in 1968 in San Francisco. Uh, he was a member of Progressive Labor, PL, and he ran on the independent ticket. And he, he got like 8% of the voters, so I'm sure, 5% of the vote. And the cops hated him. He was an activist, and, and he was at a thing, and it cracked him in the head with a, with a nightstick. And his, his eye was, uh, he had lost some vision in his eye for the rest of his life. My dad eventually had a glass eye later on in life. So, yeah, he was fucked up on drugs, and he came to New York, and uh, the FBI showed up at my mom at our house, and harangued my mother about my father who was upstairs kicking dope which my mom didn't never told me because she could keep a secret she never ratted him out and um she told the cops to go fuck themselves basically they were like stressing around she had to get me to school and go to work and probably had a hangover and she was not feeling it she was like you know like you know get out of here and she told me never talk to cops basically she was like i was like but mom the, the, why were you like you know she told the cops to get a, a warrant if they want to talk to her and and they knew her name and everything and she was pissed and I was like, Mom, why'd you talk like that to the cops? She's like, those guys are fucking clowns. She's like, they're clowns and don't ever, ever talk to the cops. She's like, don't be a fink. Don't tell them shit unless you have to. I remember they had white socks on and like suits. And I was like, who the fuck dresses like that in my neighborhood? Like, dudes were wearing dashikis. You know what I mean? It was like, dudes were funky. And these dudes had like a corny ass like suit. It was just weird. And this is like the recipe for your life. You know, on some levels, in, in a lot of ways, it is. Yeah, between and then. I mean, my mom didn't give a fuck. Like my mom definitely had a mouth on her. She was she didn't hold back, kind of like me. 
but also it's so soulful down there. You're hearing such good music and this defiance is is piped into your fucking head. 100%. And then you stumble into skateboarding and punk rock. Of course. You know, like I grew up listening to my parents' records, my mom. My dad wasn't really around and she loved like soul music. So Aretha Franklin, Al Green, Marvin Gaye, you know, Nina Simone, Ann Peebles, like this stuff's going on in the house. And she's also listening to like Van Morrison and Bob Dylan. And, you know, she digs the singer songwriter thing, Joni Mitchell, who I never liked. I, I always... Do you still like, not like her? Nah, she's pitchy and I, I I wound up coming around on yeah, Joni Mitchell. Gives me, like it hurts my teeth. I can't listen to it. It's like it's too much for me. And and of course, you know, as I get older, I'm you know, I'm like listen WABC, the great radio station we grew up with that played everything, right? You know, mm -hmm. you're in Steve Miller band and fucking Casey and the Sunshine band. So, you know, I grew up with all that and the Bee Gees and Queen and you know, I liked all that shit. So, man, like uh, we moved to Brooklyn and I'm in high school and this girl who I really liked was into punk rock. And um, I was like, the only way I, 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 so I was already like, I got into, I was in the new wave. Like, you know, we were all like, we're kind of like, I was into the clash. I liked the clash and I liked a couple other bands, sex pistols, but I had like the Tony Hawk haircut, you know, and I like was a skateboarder. I was like, I really like this chick. She's like all punk rock. And I'm like, I'm on the fence. You know what I mean? Like in that weird eighties kind of moment, like the early eighties. And uh, I made the move. I was like, Cut all my hair. And what like, was the move, though? What did you hear that made you be like, I'm in? Or was bad, it just the bad brains. bad brains? Bad brains. I mean, I was really into the Clash, though, and Devo. Like, and, and um, I remember I went to see the song Remains the Same with my teenage friends, and I was, like, in that mode. And it was the same summer the Clash played, in fact, at Bonds. 81? Maybe it was before. It was 80, actually. It was a year before, if, I think, if I'm right. And I remember um, going to see it with my pothead, my dirtbag pothead friends. And that's when everyone, like, we're all like dirtbags. My one friend was like, that was fucking incredible. And I was like, yo, you're so fucking stupid. I was like, that was the fucking worst piece of shit I ever saw. Which Led Zeppelin, the song remains the yeah. same. And he was like, he was like, no. I was like, are you smoking angel dust? Like, fucking, I was like, I hate Robert Plant's fucking hair and his fucking flares. I was like, this shit is fucking corny. Hippie shit in Manhattan didn't fly. No, it was, it was, you know, it was like, because the kids downtown were like, they had long hair, but like we had like Max's Kansas City, kind of the remnants of, right? Glam punk rock Right, and, and then CB's, like I said, but that's like an older generation, but I could smell change in the air. You know, it's 1980, it's fucking summer, and Rocky Horror Picture Show was the gateway drug to punk rock, I think, for everyone. And and I'm just Did you like, go on 8th Street? Oh, yeah, all the time. My all sister time. like lived there. Yeah, I fucking was on 8th Street all the time. Like, and, and I was cool with these kids on 8th Street. And then when I cut my hair, these fucking Guido dudes. Because people don't know that the village had a lot of Guidos, right? Like, And they all like hung out in this one part of Washington Square Park and over by Pompeii Church, Sullivan Street. There's all this, this kind of like Howard Beach vibe. And these guys I knew, they went from like being cool with me to trying to beat me up all the time. And they were like guidos. And, and a lot of it had to do with the girl. This one girl liked me, Celeste. And she had gone out with one of them or whatever. Girls always liked me. I always had trouble with girls when I was a kid. Because I'd always like a Dante's girl. Dante's very like handsome. He's I was very handsome. You're still handsome, Dante. Uh, then I was like he's a model he's kid. He's very handsome. Everyone's like this. This his Dante, we didn't get to the most important stuff. He's a very successful A&R guy. Someone, I think Latifah said, you have the greatest cheekbones in the A&R world. That's been said. I had, I had razor sharp cheekbones. So, you know. I, a beautiful guy. I was a good looking kid, so I had bad teeth, but that was kind of charming in its own way. So I ended up- um, Very punk rock. Right. It was like the Joe Strummer thing. So I don't know, man. I cut my hair and, and I, I got rid of my- I cashed in on my fucking- the guys who, who couldn't keep up. I had this friend, John, John Paredes, aka John Potatoes, and he took me to see the Bad Brains at 171A 
the studio they recorded their first record at. And uh, I still had the long hair. Not long hair. I had the Tony Hawk. And I saw the Bad Brains. And I was like, that's it. I Were you hair. there the night that it's like a famous John Joseph story? With dudes? the belt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I didn't see it. I know the story. I know it's it's there's some truth in there. You know, John definitely um, was not scared of the Puerto Rican dudes there. And they definitely did give him props. And John was a pretty tough character, and he definitely helped protect us when we were kids. I love John. I have some differences in ideology with John. Okay. But That's but fair. I love John, and a lot of people talk a lot of shit about John. But I will say this. John had my back, and John will still have my back if the shit went down, and I would have his. But anyway, I love him. I got a hug for John. If you hear this, John, I love you, boss. He is uh, one of the greatest dopey guests ever. Very generous with me in the show. So like, he's a, he's a hard man, too. Like He's not playing. No, exactly. But but more importantly, it's like you're in the hardcore scene. Uh, you're you're at 171A. You're, you're at the Bad Brain shows. Yes. And you, and you meet beastie boys yeah i mean we're just all in the same kind of ecosystem we're in the same like this world right and we're there and we're like we're a little too late for punk rock punk rock's still lingering but it's like post-punk right and like we missed the, the glory days like i saw the clash at the palladium 1980 right i saw them i saw them at bonds 81 so i did see some of the glory days of punk rock but you know 1980s not 1977 78 right and that's the guys who are older than us and I kind of was like, those are like the leather pants guys. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they're like Stiv Bader's dudes. And like, I'm like those guys, that's like junkie rock. Right, dead boys. Whatever. Yeah, it's not for me. You know, I'd see Joey Ramone a lot around. I love the Ramones. Ramones are one of the first things that were punk that I ever liked. I heard Sheena as a punk rocker on like some late night show on W. Kate, not BLS or PLJ, PL, PLJ, I think, or 99X. They had this late night show on Sundays and... I was tuning into it and I heard Sheena is a punk rock. It sounded like the Beach Boys to me. It's amazing. Nothing sounded, it didn't sound punk rock at all. I, I didn't know anything about it. I, I came way late to the Ramones. I was like, what is punk rock about this? It was just good music to me. So, But I was like, if that's punk rock, I think I like this stuff. So I always loved the Ramones. And, did you ever yeah, meet them? I did. I knew Joey, yeah. How And what was he like in person? He was, you know, he was Joey. He was like- Weird and sweet. Night, very nice. You know, might have been on the spectrum. Right. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, I don't think I put in the story in the, in the book, but I used to see him around. I worked at this place, Rat Cage Records. That was like my on-again, off-again kind of part-time bum job. And they started selling skateboards. Dave Parsons, who was a cross-dresser at later, and he ride a skateboard in a dress. You know, how punk rock can... That's the most punk rock shit ever, right? Mm -hmm. Nicest guy ever. Our crew wasn't too homophobic, man. You know, we don't, we don't fucking give a fuck. We grew up downtown. And, and I used to always make fun of Joe. I'd skateboard down the street. Like, Yo, free sell out. And he came in the store one day to see Dave. And Dave was like, you know, Dante's like, yeah, it's a fucking kid. He's always making fun. He's always making fun of me. And, so and Dave funny. looks at me. He's like, what are you, what are you fucking, excuse me, look like, what are you stupid? And we smoke a pin joint in the back and Joey Ramones. I'm like, you know, I'm like, I make peace. I don't peace. But I'm like, so, you know, oh, you know. And he's like, you love the Ramones. Why would you? I was like, eh. He's like, you know, the Bad Brains are fucking took their name from a Ramon song. I was like, they did? <laughs> He's like, yeah, you schmuck. I was like, but they're rich. He's like, Rich is on Fourth Avenue. What are you stupid? And uh, I'd see Joey, and Joey, you know, Joey was a great AR guy. He when he showed up at your show, you got famous. He was a big Beastie Boys fan very early on. Is that right? Big one. And he was at the show at the Ritz and he was like, you know, they're fucking incredible. Like, I just remember him. Like, you know, he's like Joey Ramon. He's like... When they were playing hardcore? No, when they were playing fucking rap. But he was like, they're fucking incredible. And he was always at Bad Brain shows. Like, you know, if you went to your show, that meant something. 
Well, he was so weird, but so cool. He's Joey Ramone, man. Exactly. No one like him. And he's, you know, we love Joey Ramone. We like, I want to give Joey Ramone a hug. Me too. So I saw him with Everlast on the street one day, and he was like, Everlast. He's like, Joey. (laughs) Gives him a hug. You know, Dante, hey. We see him, and I'm like, how the fuck do you know Joey Ramone? And he's like, he's like, I never told you the story. I was like, no. He's like, yo, we opened for the Ramones when our record first came out. How's Jumped around when it first popped off. And he's like, we're playing the Palladium, two shows. And like, I don't know if you know this, Joey Hand picked all the openers always. I didn't. Yeah, Joey always picked openers. Yeah, that was his shit. Because he's a great A&R guy. So House of Pain opens the first night, and they get booed. Like, boo, boo. And then they're in LA at the Palladium. They have like a huge hit record. And Be Real supposedly was on the side of the stage. And they have that song, Put Your Head Out. And B-Real's looking at him like, don't, don't bring me out, bro. Yo, and I got my man B-Real here. He, you know, B-Real's going to fucking feel the struggle too. And they go out there too. They're like, fuck you guys. You suck. And the next day he's, he's like, I'm not. Oh, his mom was there. His mom saw him get booed. Everlast his mom, mom is there. He, supposed, he told me that after the set, he just threw the mic down and left. So he, he never won them over. Yo, no. So he has the next show. And he's like, I'm not doing the show. And his manager's like, yeah, after the show, he's like, I'm not fucking playing for that audience. And they're like, he's like, they fucking destroyed me. I have like the biggest record in America right now. And she's like, you have to do the show. You got paid. You have to do the show. <laughs> and she's like, calls his mom and his mom's like, Eric, you have to do the show. And he's like, I don't want to do the show. So he gets there early and Joey Ramone's like, I'm so sorry about last night. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it tonight. I'm going to introduce you guys and make sure it's fucking, they're not going to fucking yell, you know, they're not going to boo you tonight. I promise. And he went out there and Joe Ramon was like, yo, these are my friends and you guys were disrespectful yesterday. And you got to like, these are my guys. They're here for me and you guys got to give it up. These guys are the best things since sliced bread. Give it up for House of Pain. They go out there, kill it. Amazing. Joe Ramon stays on the side of the stage. Amazing. And they kill it. B-Real wants to go out that yeah. night. I, I, I never, I, probably, but I didn't get that part. You know, B-Real might just not have came that night. That shit was <laughs> whack. I'm not coming today, yo. And so that's why, and so I have a big Joe Ramon doll that Eric got. Because I was always like, I love Joey Ramone. I love the Ramones. And Eric, um, when we were making Whitey Ford Sings the Blues, he was staying at my house. He wasn't really hip to the Bad Brains. And I played him the Bad Brains. Like, he knew the name. And, like, you know, it just wasn't tuned in. And I played it for him. He's like, that's the fastest thing I ever heard in my life. And I was like, "Would you, you like it? He's like, dude, it's incredible. He's like, he was like, I don't know how they could play so fast and have so much clarity in everything they're doing. It's like, it's so melodic, but it's so fucking aggressive. And I was like, yeah, it's fucking, he became a Bad Brains fan. And in turn, earlier than that, so I always thought Soundgarden was a little corny. And then he turned me on to early Soundgarden, and I was like, oh, shit, Jesus Christ, Pose, that's that shit. I didn't know about, I didn't know about Rusty Cage and all that. I just knew, like, the hits, right? So he put me on, you know, Louder Than Love and, and Super, and, uh, you know, Bad Motor Fingers, and, and I was like, oh, shit. He also hit me to Radiohead, because I thought Creep, I thought they were a fake grunge band. He was like, nah, they're great. And I had slept on them. So we always exchanged music. But that's a Joey Ramone story. So I did know Joey Ramone a little bit. He wasn't like my good friend, but he's fucking cool. He's Joey Ramone. And you see him everywhere. He's Joey Ramone. And like, yeah, it's it's incredible. Just, I mean, your ears are so open and you've been in so many different situations. And I, I think the uh, the Forrest Gump of... of of hip hop yeah, is Forrest fair. Gump is kind of a schmuck though, right? No, he's, he, kind of I mean, an, he's, he's an on, idiot savant. He's, I don't think I'm an idiot savant. You're the feather. Right. You're the feather right. gliding through this right. story. It was a beautiful thing that Black Thought said though. I have, you know, like- 100%. And I just like, so Black Thought, this is crazy. My friend Sean Kane produced a lot of his stuff. He's a great producer, Sean C. And he told me, yo, Black Thought put me up on the podcast. Yo, he, 
yo, I'm listening to it now. And I was like, oh, word, Black Dollar Tree. He's like, yo, he loved that shit. He told me I had to, yo, you got to listen to your man's shit. And I saw him on the street. And I was like, yo, Black Dog, I'm Dante Ross. He he was, yo! He was with like his lady. And we like Was talked. it that day? It was that day. And we hung out like on the street, like while he's going to fucking do Fallon. And I'm going to do some shit at, at Sirius. You were coming here, you fucker. And, and we just ended up hanging out. So it's the only time I've ever hung out Black Dog. I've seen him one time since then at the Daylight thing. But I talked to him. Sent him a book. And I don't know, man. It was cool. And, and it's cool because I'm a huge Black Dog fan. Yeah, yeah, he did great at that day last show, and I, and I love the Roots, and I, and I, you know, that's one of those bands. They are a continuation of the thing that I love, that I was in the middle of, and Questlove is like he's my guy. He's the fucking coolest. Questlove is a cat's guy. Yo, he's the coolest. Like everyone loves him, right? He's a beloved person for sure. He's a cat's regular. Uh, I used to do a show at Katz's. Oh, that makes sense. Yes, he got to. We got to. We got to talk to my man about the. Diet. You got to hook him up with John Joseph. Yeah, you know, because my thing is hip hop needs a better diet. Like, I think hip-hop needs a better diet. That sounds like a book. I mean, it would be a John Joseph book. <laughs> you know, I just think that we need a better diet because, we, you know, we're losing people, man. We lose our brothers all the time. Bismarck, he had diabetes. Five. Five quests. You know, he's a big man, and I just don't want to lose – I don't want to lose uh, anyone else who who's part of this just because they're not eating right or not taking care of themselves. Now, I stumbled onto you directly from Three Feet High and Rising, mm. but – I don't know how I knew about your association with Beastie Boys. Like, how did that really happen? That. Yeah, I but, mean, I'm you know, I grew up with them. They kind of like always, you know, they kind of acknowledge me and shout me out here and there, and vice versa. And, and I guess also I've just been friends with them. Like, you know, if there's a Beastie Boys thing in New York, I'm always there with them or whatever, hanging out. I'm always, I always had a, I'm always on the guest list plus one and all that shit. So, but you were also there for the scene. You were good friends with John Barry. John Barry was my best friend. I lived with John Barry up at 100 Street and Broadway. And I was very, very close with Mike D at that time. And yeah, it's ironic that I live with with John. He was my best friend. And I'm such a hip-hop fanatic. And he moonwalked away from hip-hop and the Beastie Boys. He quits the, oh, yeah, he the quit. biggest hip-hop, the potentially biggest well, he wasn't hip-hop, a hip-hop act in the world. Though, right. know, was, he was just being true to himself, you know? And, and to his credit, he had zero resentment about it. He was never bummed out or pissed off. Like, he didn't care. Like, that wasn't him. That wasn't his vibe. Now- one of my favorite things in the book. Rest in peace, John Barry. I love you. I miss you. How did he die? He had a neurological uh, disorder and he had early onset of dementia. He died at 52 years of age. And and I thought it might have been caused by wet brain or, or alcoholism, but it wasn't. It was just a freaky neurological disorder is what I was told. So the Beastie Boys become one of the biggest acts in the world and mm-hmm. he is just chilling in Manhattan? Like, what was yeah, he like doing? like, in these bands. Like, he had a band, Big Fat Love. They were on Grand Royal for a minute, Bourbon Deluxe. Just doing this rock and roll thing. Like, he was, like, the first guy in New York. We called him Mick Loud. I don't know if you remember the show called McLeod. Yeah, yeah, Dennis yeah, yeah. Weaver, he was a, co- a cowboy yeah, yeah, in New York. Yeah, 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 so, John started wearing a cowboy hat around 1983, 84, and started, like, I don't know, maybe was cowpunk-ish and got into all this Americana shit and, like, I don't know. He he imagined himself as this kind of cowboy hat wearing swanky kind of cat. And we started calling him Mick Loud because he was a very loud individual. He walked in the room and it was always like a tornado entered the room. So I don't know, man. He just followed his own thing. He moved to San Francisco. He had a kid. He came back to New York a couple years later. John was, you know, John was a unique character. He was not. A lot of people in this world act like they don't give a fuck. John really didn't give a fuck. So he didn't have an ounce of regret for leaving that situation. Not to my knowledge. I never heard him say anything about it. And, and then when they put out, um, when they reissued the record, 
you which, know, which, which Pol- Pollywog Pollywog stew. stew. He got a fat check, right? And he drank it he, away, right? Okay, gone. I think it was like maybe I don't know, it's some money. You know, now, now, probably when, more than he ever got at once. When I was bugging Dante to come on the show, he was like, "Listen, I'm not coming on and telling a bunch of fucking war stories. That's not what I'm doing." I'm like, "No, I'm really into the music." However, one of the greatest stories in the book, because I grew up idolizing Beastie Boys. Obviously, I'm ten years younger than yeah, you. Yeah, makes sense. You know, it's like and they're like the quintessential downtown kind of cool guys. Yeah, and I'm like a nerdy Jewish kid from, <laughs> from here. It's like, a, 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 like we all grew up like rapping the Beastie Boys. You know what I mean? But the story that blew me away first of all was Mike D's parents' apartment. Just you described. Oh yeah, it. his house was like. Look, I'm a, I'm a blue collar kid with with um artistic sensibilities. You know, I've like you know I was exposed to a lot of shit. And, uh, yo, Mike D's house was like an art gallery. You know, he had like Brancusi flight in the house. Did they have Picasso's in there? Andrew Calder, Mobile above his bedroom. It was like crazy. Crazy. It was like, crazy. It was like, it was like you know, I don't even think I realized at the time how crazy it was. Right. And I, and he has so much confidence on stage. And you're like, why does this guy? He didn't have that much confidence in real life. He developed that, but he didn't have it at first. I waited on him and his family at Katz's. Was he nice? So nice. Nice guy. And Ad-Rock. Ad-Rock twice. Nicest. Both of them super nice. And super sarcastic. Those guys destroy me every time I'm around them. Well, Ad-Rock was so annoying because I, I like worship Ad- I worshiped Ad-Rock. Ad-Rock is very aloof. And, well, he was cool because he was with some kid that he wanted the kid to work at Katz's. Oh, that's crazy. And I was like, let's hook it up. Let's hook it up. And I was doing a web series at Katz's called The Last Jewish Waiter about a waiter <laughs> that wants to be a talk show host, like but he does it while he waits tables. That's a good idea. So Ad-Rock said he'd come on and he gives me his email. And he ghosts. Oh, he, he oh. I'm, look, I'm still waiting. I'm supposed to go get soup dumplings with him because he lives in Pasadena at San Gabriel Valley. Right. I saw him at a funeral in New York right before the pandemic, and I still don't think I've got a response. I, I don't even try with him. Years later, he comes back to Katz's, and I'm working there. I'm like, dude, I've written you 20 emails. I was like, have you not come back because you were scared you were going to see me? He's like, yes. <laughs> but, you know, my question is, in that era, you're selling Crystal, and you <laughs> and Mike D are selling Coke at Vassar. Okay, so let me back. That's the greatest story I'm, ever. I'm, I'm, um, I'm selling Crystal Meth and doing Crystal Meth with John Barry and others. Mike was partaking a little bit, probably, and ran his course quick though. And Mike was selling the cocainas, not me. So what was the Crystal? What was your relationship with Crystal at the time? And even more importantly, what about Dust? Oh, Dust is fucked up. Dust is like the worst drug. It's like the Russian roulette drug. Uh, I smoked dust one time and I ended up in a photo negative for what seemed like hours. <laughs> and I came out of it drenched in sweat. And I was like, yo, how long was I out for? And they were like, how long do you think? I was like, three hours or like 15 minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. How so, many times do you think you smoked dust? Uh, at least 20. Right. All on the Lower East Side kind no, of thing? No, Dust was a Harlem thing, an uptown thing. Now, when they say my manager's crazy, he always smoked dust. Who he, is that? Russell. He smoked dust for right, sure. Right, right, For sure. Right. Me and Mike D smoked dust together before, I think. I, you know, my memory's a little out. Mike Mike was experimental with drugs. He like Me and him got down. You know, we did some things. In all of my research, it says that Mike D is the dopiest of the Beastie Boys. He's the dopiest by far. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, not to put his business out there, but Mike's been like, he's fucking has probably done hasn't done anything but smoke pop for like forty years, and he never was an addict or had a problem that I know of. Like he's totally. You know, and you know, I'm not insinuating that he is. Yeah, nah. And you know, Mike is like, you know, he's he's a funny guy, man. I love Mike. Mike is great. Um, yeah, we went to Vassar and we delivered an eight ball to a friend of ours, and 
the schmuck dropped it like in front of the fucking campus pub. And I saw the guy recently. I think he's a little annoyed that I put his name in the book. Tom Beller. I love him. <laughs> Sorry, I said your name again. And I told the story and he lo- he was like, oh, my. I forgot. The- I was like, yeah, selective memory. You would forget that, pal. Um, and he dropped the eight ball and he scooped it up and put it in his pocket and he took it through a strainer and nothing happened. But when it happened, me and Mike D were mad ghosts. I have to say, Mike D knew the exit plan he, for a blue blood. He was he was very thorough in his in his uh, ability to evade the scene. And it happened too when we was a TA key and I got caught to crystal meth. He also didn't get any repercussions. Mike D was very 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 crafty, slippery character. When I think about it. For oh. sure. But like that MTA story, where do you get, and it's an MTA skeleton key, which I think is a good band name, MTA skeleton key. It's long. Okay. Now, where did it come from? So all graffiti writers had that key. So someone just gave me it or I copied it from somebody. How good were you at writing? I was pretty good. Do they still have keys to the city like that? I don't think so. And I think it's a felony. I got hit with the felony for it. Because it's a burglary tool. But you also had the math on you. Well, I had double felony. Yeah. <laughs> if you're getting one, might as well get two. Who are you? When? How much graffiti did you write back a then? A lot. And who were you writing with? So I'm the son of guys like Eric Hayes, like Hayes, Revolt, Zephyr, Mackie. So those were my elders. And I wrote with guys like Scribe, Ren One. My partner later on was this kid, Wolf One, who's like pretty famous. Team, who was pretty famous. Um, that those are like my inner circle of writers. This guy Sniper, um, my friend Snow, Sake. Um, did you know those guys, the Sane and Smith guys? I do. I, I met Smith. I didn't. I can't say I know him, but I met him. Um, and he's cool, man. And he's dope. I got to give him props. I'll show you some graffiti in, in a when we're done with this at some point. I think Sane went to Hunter because he like would cut. He would he would put up pieces in the in the. Sane is the older one and he died a long time ago. Yeah, he put up this fancy dragon in the in the early nineties, I think. And that's why Smith did all the damage he did to keep his brother's name alive. Which is beautiful. Yeah, and Smith was when I met him, was um very low key. I played touch football with him in Central Park with my man Chino, BYI. And uh I think it's the only time I ever met him and he was like, Yo, your system? I was like, Yeah, he's like, Yo, I'm Smith. And I, we had played the whole game. You were system. I was system here. There you go. Incredible. That was on 30. I remember Fifth Street. this. I, 35th Street. Incredible. 35th and 10th. Awesome. We did I a love lot of that. parking lots. So I was. Send it to me. I'll, I'll post it after. after my graffiti come on the days show. were. I wrote some graffiti. Oh, my other partner was Reveal, my childhood friend. And, and um, by the time I got good, trains were a wrap. I just sent it to myself, and the name that comes up above mine is Big Daddy Kane. That's good. That's amazing. Um, What a moment. That's a good moment for myself. And and an IRS bill is right before it. That's (laughs) That's all other story. So so, um, my boy got me to make a little comeback in like 91 or so, and my skills had greatly improved. And uh, we started doing pieces. It was fucking fun. We go out and get drunk. We had our crew. The drunken assholes, they're drunk again. The drunken amigos, they're dusted always. Though we weren't smoking dust, but just we liked the name. Just anything that had to do with drugs or alcohol, we incorporated into our name. And me, him, and this guy team, we went and did a bunch of pieces. It was dope. It was cool. It was a, it was a moment in time. Graffiti is an incredible New York City art form. Graffiti is like the gateway drug to crime. Well, I heard you say that in terms of that that book, that uh, that Subway art book being yeah, the greatest vandalism yeah. handbook in the world. You know, and like my man Eric Hayes said, he said, you know, the problem with graffiti is there's no Grammy. Right. And I was like, wow. He's like, yeah, you know, there's no like greatest writer of the year. So everyone writes their own history and it's all fucking, That's all this minutiae attached to it and fucking dudes are beefing over 
going over their tag in 1979 still. Yeah, the, the days of toy, toy well, it's punks. It's because all they have. That's all you have. A lot of guys is your fame. That's, that's all. And who's who are you famous to? Twelve people. Yeah, the guys yeah. who are on the block. Hey, you're famous to the other guys who aren't famous to anyone. So it means nothing. But it makes New York a better place. Maybe sometimes or a worse place. When it's good, it makes. Listen, you're, we're lucky that we came up in an era with with good graffiti. It's mm. fucking. I feel very lucky to have experienced. There's it. a lot of garbage in the world graffiti wise these days. Yeah, well, there's a lot of garbage in everything. It's true. So, this is very true. So you fucking, you exist in this Beastie Boys scene. Beastie Boys signed to Def Jam. Is, and that's how you wind up at Rush? Yeah, I'm a waiter. At Tortilla Flats. I had slick back hair. My boys came, Mike the him came one night and they called me Beefsteak Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, Beefsteak Charlie. So yeah. that was the best. They were coming, I gave them like free margaritas. And I met Lee. They, so they, they had this road manager, the captain, Sean Karazov, and he was like, he took me under his wing. He was my drinking partner. I found out later that he was in love with my girlfriend. Seems like um, a lot of people were, were enamored with your, with your partners. I had a lot of pretty girlfriends. So, so um, me and Sean become really good friends. And then Lior, Sean introduces me to Lior. I leave Lior also trying to talk to my girlfriend and doesn't work out, but he gives me a job. And I leave my job waiting tables where I made maybe back then, maybe... You know, six hundred dollars a week, eight hundred dollars a week. I make good money, three, four days a week, two hundred fifty, two hundred dollars a night cash. And you know, it's. Back I then. waited tables at Katz's for ten years. Yeah, it's like I did better at that than producing TV. Yeah, it's like real money. Yeah, like you know. So I left my job that was cash and tax free for like two hundred twelve dollars a week. But I was like smart enough to like this might get me somewhere. Ricky went on tour with the Beasties. I took his Ricky message. Powell. Ricky Powell, rest in peace. I took his job as a messenger. And I think I sold Frozade before that. I think later Ricky sold Frozade. So there's a lot of synergy between our job swapping. Now, when do you remember the first time you heard hip hop and the first time it caught your imagination? Well, I mean, Sugar Hill Gang, 1979. That was a hit record. And Rapper's all, Delight. Yeah, we all love that. That was cool. And my friend um, Columbus Van Horn, <laughs> the best name ever. Columbus, don't call me Columbus, call me Jackie Van Horn, hit me to... Uh, Grandmaster Flash, because I like Sugar Hill Gang. He gave me a tape. It was a live Flash tape. And that's when I first got into hip-hop, like really beyond the obvious. But, um, you know, my my interests were varied, and hip-hop seemed like a novelty, maybe. And then we get, like, The Message and, like, Soul Sonic Force and all this stuff. And and um, this stuff becomes, like, part of our DNA. And I'm hanging out at the Fun Gallery, which is the first graffiti gallery in America. And um, I knew Ramal Z, and he was like, you, you got to come to this thing we do in the grill on Second Avenue. I knew where Club in the Grill was. So I went to the second one. The first time I saw breaking hip hop, someone on the mic, all that shit in one place, like the real hip hop, like whatever you want to call it. And it was mind boggling. To me, it was like the greatest thing I'd ever seen since the Bad Brains. But I was like, oh shit, this is crazy. And at that point, we were kind of over hardcore. You know, the knuckleheads showed up, like dudes are too tough and. You know, it's just like it wasn't cool the way you wanted to be cool. That's why when I said every, that was the dudes I was running away from. I was like, oh, you guys, are, it was like almost like bridge and tunnel. Yeah, I'm running away from you and you're running away from that. Right. Yeah. I'm like, get away. You guys suck. Like, you know, not I mean, it suck, but it's like I don't want to be around a bunch of like it's a guys. lot of masculine aggression. So we moved on to like a cooler, hipper, sexier scene and hip hop kind of coincided with that. You know, as punk rock kids, hip hop was like our version of dub for the punk guys in England a couple of years earlier. 
you know, we always listen to hip hop. We listen to Rock the Body by Treacherous Three and uh, Love Rap by Spoonie G. And, and, you know, all of us were listening to those records. We thought that shit was cool. And when Beastie Boys are transitioning from hardcore and punk rock to hip hop and you're doing it, what's the conversation like? Is it uh, like. There was no conversation. It's just happening. It's, it's, it's just what you do. Your kids, you're evolving, you're changing. You know, at that age, you, you change at light speed. Like, right. Now we've Speed slow. of thought. Yeah, right. It's like, bong, I'm doing this now. Right. And it just was. It just became what it was. But it, it's also like when I talk about, like, you came up in that situation mm. that set you up to be in that mm -hmm. situation because you're from a neighborhood right. of black people, Spanish right. people, Spanish music, people mostly. fashion, people looking yeah. cool, looking yeah, fly yeah. is a part of the thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and then and all of a sudden it's hitting you. For me, it, it made it a little easier to transition. And I was always like a little more... Like I was always more street than those guys. So, and you know, I knew those records. Like, I, I grew up hearing like you know, Just Begun and Apache and and Bra by Samandi Pleasure, you know, Joyous. Like, I heard those records as a kid, so I knew those records. And those are the you know, those are foundational records in hip hop. So I'm going to Roxy and I'm hearing these records. I know some of them because they're foundational records of hip hop, and some of them are WABC records, sure. like Wild Honey, the fucking Brass Monkey joint. Right, right, right. right, right, right. I mean, Wild Sugar, like that's a record we know, Miami, Party Freaks. These are records we know, so I get lifted by George McRae. We know this shit already. So, you know, for me, it was like, kind of just all made sense. I never like, in my head, I'm not like conscious, but I'm like, there doesn't, there's no awkwardness in this kind of lifestyle change that we're all going through, like together. So, you know, it was easy. And because I grew up with all pretty much all Puerto Rican dudes, I went to the boys club and played basketball, fucking boxed, all that shit. So I was always around a lot of Spanish and black dudes. For me to be around like hip hop culture was and graffiti was, it was like, you know, it was supernatural. Yeah, was like didn't even think twice about it. Now, when De when Run DMC hits and when LL That's comes the out. the most incredible thing ever. Run DMC was the most, they were like another one. When, they, when I hear sucker MCs, it's like I hear the bad brains. Like you have seen the light, right? It's like a, it's like a oh shit moment. You're like, this is everything I've been waiting for. Because remember, rap was almost like dressed up disco like at it first. Had, right, it it right, became right. very musical, and dudes were dressed like a broke Rick James and leather pants and nine belts on and some yeah, fucking yeah, weird yeah. shoulder pad. Yeah, yeah. So we couldn't. I couldn't. You know, you can't dress like that on a train in New York. You get beat up, and that and that also, that does not look good on white people. No. Like, black dudes could pull it off. It doesn't really look good on anybody, really. Rick James was pretty cool yeah, yeah, yeah. in his okay. own way. Okay. Like, George Clinton looked cool. George Clinton, yes. Yeah, but, you know, I couldn't do that. Like, I can't do that. So, so. Run DMC heads. Run DMC looks like the audience. I, you know, I and the music. I mean, Run is so smooth and DMC is so mighty. I don't it's know like, if I would say Run smooth. He's kind of aggressive. I mean, I, I felt like their whole thing was um, anti-music. There's no music. Run no has keyboards. this likable thing about him when he flows. In person, he he was kind of a. I waited he's not on that Run. Nice. I waited on him he's at Katz's. Nice. He wasn't that nice. He's nice to me, but he's not that nice. But uh, but he when he raps and like when he's on TV, he's very likable. Yeah, he's charismatic dude, man, without a doubt. Yo, Run DMC is just everything, man. They were just like, you know, Sucker MCs was a hit record in New York, and it's like that both sides from day one. I heard it the first time I heard it on the mix show. I was drinking with, I want to say Mike D and those guys at John Barry's house and I lost my mind and we all lost our minds and that was like the turning of the key. Like we we're like, oh shit, there's something beyond Jimmy Spicer. There's something beyond this stuff. There's something with no keyboards, you know, because Houdini was popping before they were, but it was, and they were like kind of smooth, but we liked Houdini a lot. But then, you know, Run DMC was different. It was more connected to the pulse of punk rock, almost right. heavy metal. It just sounded so aggressive. Hard rock. Raw, just 
drums yelling at you. They they also love rock and roll. Like like they like Very DMC much. wanted to yeah. be a rock star. Yeah, so DMC King of G- Rock, all that. I just want to say I love you, DMC. You're the best dude ever. I I'm, love you, love you, love you. I'm sure he listens to every dope. He's episode. a friend of mine, man. He's a great dude. He's he's I, I'm I talked to him on the phone the other day. He's he great. was in here and I'm gonna and I'm doing a lab with him at the Park City Song Summit. So maybe he'll listen to this. You never know. But he was he was very generous he's with me. He's a cool cat, fucking man. nice guy. He's a gentle giant. And then, what about the story where you and him are punching out Got fucking right windows? He had, he had no recollection of it. Opening night of the world, Davy DMX, Public Enemy performing. I'm working at Rush. Lior's like, you're going to, you you are going to run the, you're going to make the show happen tonight. I don't know what my title was, whatever it was, I was in over my head. Clearly, I have no idea why he thought I could handle this. So. I guess I was thrust into a situation I was ill-equipped for, so my first impulse is to drink everything I can. So I get wasted. Davey DMX yells at me because his turntables are skipping on stage. I get That's when I got wasted because I'm getting yelled at by Davey DMX and I'm Dante Ross. You bugged out. Yeah, I'm fucking, this guy's yelling at me. <laughs> he has to perform in the DJ booth, which is up, up top in the balcony. He's fucking pissed. Public Enemy though they show up in soundcheck and they're they have their DJ. I got no problems. I got that one. They're killing. Their soundcheck is flawless. So the guy who ran the place, Frank Rocco, Rocco was a piece of garbage. I'd been a, I'd lived in the world. This is so crazy. I had an apartment in the world. I helped build it. I did. I don't say build. I did all the sheetrock carpentry. Me and my friend Ethan and I lived there. And Frank stiffed me for a bunch of money. And we literally had to go to his house one day with like, you know, a hammer and a pit bull and be like. You know, walk him to the bank to pay us. So we didn't like each other. And he was like, I was like, yo, the turntable is good. And he's like, yeah, have fun, jerk off. I was like, I fucking hate this guy. So I'm dealing with Frank Rocco being a cocksucker. Let me not hold back. And all this. I think he on. listens to every episode too. He, I, okay. think he's, I think he's dead. Okay. I think he died. So we end up after the show, I'm wasted. And DMC's got, he, I don't know if you know, he has this big, he had a big ring. It was a Colt 40, uh, Old English, 800 insignia on a big ring and there's this pane glass door and he pops in one bong he's kind of using his ring and he's like the green lantern's in the motherfucking house or something i'm like that ain't shit and he's like yeah what, what can you do and i pop one too nothing on my hand right and he's like oh you think you're nice and i was like Shh, i know i'm nice bong he hits another one that shit broke and i was like i got you i go bong and bong cut my finger open i'm bleeding i'm drunk davy dmx takes pity on me he's no longer yelling at me he gives me a ma- napkin towel to wrap around my hand i've got a fucked up hand i walk outside of the place i bump in. i'm wasted i bump into russell he's like yo you're mad pissy i was like yep and i'm like bleed he's like what happened in? i was like don't worry about it and he, i'm like yo i gotta get a cab though. i gotta i gotta go to the hospital and get my shit fixed and he gives me 20 bucks and i go to bethers emergency room and they stitch me up and my fingers are taped together for like a week and i go to work and that's that's the story and like, and I told DMX this. I mean, DM, DMX, rest in peace. DMC. I tell DMC this a couple years ago. I'm on a panel with him. He has zero recollection because it wasn't important to him. It's important. He didn't get stitches. Right. This is true. But I bet he remembered his Green Lantern ring. Uh, it, it, well, he called himself the Green Lantern, the Green Lantern, aka Doctor Waxenen. Right. That was his nickname. And he and he was the king of rock. He was in here talking about comic books for like an hour. Oh, he loves comic books. He loves like classic rock. He's fucking coolest. 
I got to get his his workout regimen. He's in crazy shape. Crazy shape. And you know, he looks like a billion dollars. And generous. Like, oh, he's wonderful. Like, we love him. He's everything you think he should be. He's just so fucking cool. 100%. One of the nicest people. And Eric, his his guy, is oh, Eric, super sweet. Blammerville, that's yeah. my man. Yeah, super he's sweet. He's the best. I saw him the other day. He's great. Good, good uh, Wonderful person, man. Very sweet. Yeah. He was here, too. Blammerville. We chill. I love you, Eric. So you're you're like- Doing, you're like getting what's his face, Leor's lunch, oh, and fucking guy. working at Rush. At what point are you like, I could be doing something else? I, I wasn't at that until someone told me I should be. And Daddy O, Daddy O from Stetsasonic, he's my man. I got banished from the run from the Rush office and sent up to Norby Walters to work for Kara Lewis. She's a boss ass bitch, super mean. She Talk, was an agent manager. She's an agent. She sounds like Bobby Fleckman. She's kind of hot. Very Jewish. Um, Sounds perfect. Crazy as fuck. Smoking stogies all day. It's the fucking weird scene. And uh, I hate my job. And Daddy-O is coming up there to like pick up some money. And he's like, yo, man, they're hiring an A&R guy at Tommy Boy. They offered me the job, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to throw you hat. You, you interested? I said, yeah. He's like, I'm going to throw your hat in the ring. So Monica Lynch, I run into her one night downtown at a club. And she's like, oh, Daddy-O told me about you. And I was like, yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she interviews me for the job, plays me De La Soul's demo. It's fucking incredible. It's bananas. And I'm like, this is like Ultramagnetic meets Slick Rick. I don't know why I said that, but it makes sense to this day. We loved Ultramagnetic, the most seminal group that no one gives props to. Cool and Keith. Cool Keith. Just the fucking beats, though. Said G on the beats was crazy, too, with Cool Keith. He's the first left field rapper, right? He's the first crazy rapper. Weirdo. Like the weirdo. He's to a, weirdo. Rhythm Father of weirdo rap. So, so um, rhythm, exactly. Rhythm X. He's the best. So we have a good interview. I don't know if I got the job or not. And she calls me like maybe a month later, a couple weeks later. She's like, hey, can you come by the office? It's right before the Christmas break. And I go and she's like, you know that group that you signed? I was like, oh, that I that I played you? And I was like, yeah, the the Prince Paul's group. And she's like, yeah, De La Soul. She's like, well, we signed him. And that's going to be your first group. And I was like, She's like, I was like, I got the job. She's like, you got the job. So basically, you're a messenger for fucking Leor. You're fucking hanging out with whoever. There's, whoever, there's more whoever. to it. I'm a messenger for Leor. I'm a Stussy model. I did an Agnes B ad slaying mad chicks downtown. Yes. I have $3 to my name. Every weekend, I either go out and come home with a girl getting a fist fight. And, and on a good weekend, both. Right. Right. And maybe both in one night, even. Right. Right. Um, I was living on. 80th between York and East End, the least sexy neighborhood in all of New York City. I had a bathtub in the kitchen, MC Search, often on my couch, Pete Nice on occasion, and uh, a futon on the floor, a color TV, a stereo, and a lot of records. And I'm making, I'm working on De La Soul. It's incredible. That, that De La Soul record changed my life. I mean, like, is like- great, One of the greatest records ever made. One of the greatest records ever and made. And super punk rock when you think about it. Because look, you know, literally- like we talk about things moving at light speed. It goes from Run DMC being the apex in 86. By 88, they're kind of passe. They're done. They're not done. It's it's getting cooked, though. It was it was, it was rough. It was rough. rough. De La Soul, Jungle Brothers. That's something DMC always talks about was that they- Yo, they, DMC, I told him when they did that record pause, I said, that don't that's whack. And he was on, on a thing. It's on my Instagram. He, he was like, the only person who told us not to do that shit was Dante Ross. My man Dante was like, yo, be you. Don't do that. Be you. That's not you. And I did tell him that because Run DMC are my all-time favorite group. I want to see them win. So when they made that record, it felt awkward to me. 
I want to, you know, and like the Beastie Boys and Too Short, they never change their style. They're the Beastie Boys, they're Too Short, and they're still here. Well, they, they were masterful at being true to themselves. And Dela poor, too. Dela as well. Now, I want to hear what you're, because I hear you talk about in the book, and I think I've heard you on other podcasts talk about how you saw hip hop as sort of black punk rock. Of course, do it yourself music. That's exactly what it was. You didn't have to play an instrument. You know, it had a punk ethos. It's accessible. It was accessible. based on your thoughts and 100%. simplicity. As for progressive people at that point in time, it's for forward thinking people. Everyone's cousin's mother's uncle wasn't Kumo cool D's road manager yet, right? Everyone's boy wasn't had a demo and everyone was like, yo, listen to my, you know, I, I rap. It wasn't like that. It was for people who were progressive at that point. And yeah, man, it was, it had a very punk rock element to it. It was like, you know, do it yourself, wasn't overthought. It was uh, spontaneous in the moment. And it did feel very punk rock to me. You know, one of my favorite stories. In the I mean, book. I skateboard. See, New York, I skateboarded to, to hip hop. Like me and my friends, we skateboarded to punk rock and hip hop. I had a tape. It was called my skate tape. And one side was Bad Brains, Black Flag, Minor Threat, maybe Motorhead. The other side is all the early Def Jam shit and mix show shit. And this is what we skated to. So we, me and my friends, were always into all kinds of music, hip hop, definitely reggae and, and punk rock. That's so, why New York City is so great. That's why New York's the best. I, mean, I grew up here in salsa music in my building, and I was like, yeah, so, you know, I get older, and I, I love Hector Laveau, right, because it was around me as a kid. So it's like, man, it's like New York is the best. Like, I was in Washington Heights yesterday. Man, Washington Heights is alive. Music Dominican everywhere. stronghold. Music everywhere. People in the street. Jews and outside. Dominicans, arm in arm, hot dancing chicks, the horror. Hot chicks walking around. Yeah, it's amazing. I was like, it felt Washington, right. It felt I, like old school. Yeah, I was like, Washington Heights is New York. Like, this is New York still alive. You know, it was, it's way more than New York than even Bed-Stuy is right now. Washington Heights was, was very real. And I went to uh, Latina and got some incredible food. Like, it was just like, my man lives up there. And I was running, walking around, running around with a couple kids up there. And I was like, man, like, the Heights... That like I hadn't, you know, I hadn't been there in so long and I hadn't been with an official tour guide. So it was like, I was like, this is the New York I miss and love. No, we used to buy fucking nickel bags on yeah, 189th we used to go and get, yeah, yeah, we used to go get the, the weed over at 181st. We get the weed at fucking the Poulet, the, you know, the Hayes that we call the Capis. We used to go up there and buy the weed it's all the time. beautiful. And how weed. much butt are you smoking in, in this era? Cypress Hill levels. Yeah, yeah. Like and you're and you're se and you're selling butt at that point too. I sold weed when I was working at Tommy Boy. Yeah. Now one of my favorite quotes in the book is you go to the Latin Quarter and it stinks of dust and dirt weed. Yo, it's it's a wild place, man. You know, Union Square was even scarier, but it's a scary ass place. But you know, all I had was like a swatch and a bucket hat, so I don't really have to worry about much. No one's who wants to rob me. And you bring Rebel without a pause to Red Alert. I do. Alert. I dropped off the test press in the Red Alert. I had the, the honor of doing that. On a, on a scale of, of, of highs, how high are you when you're handing Rebel Without a Pause and you hear him play it that night? Um, I'm not that high. And I don't mean high like on weed or something. Oh, just, I mean the, the fucking feeling of contributing that to the scene. I didn't feel like I did shit. Okay. I didn't do nothing. It, you know, it just made, it won me favor with Red. Red doesn't remember this either, by the way. How annoying is that? No, nah, it's great, man. Red Alert, he could do, me, he could do no wrong. He's my hero. You know, because I'll say like, because I gave him that, when I sent him over the Daylight record, he gave it some credence. When I sent him Latifah, he played it that day. So, you know, like these things all lead one to one to one. It's all connected, right? So, I mean, I'll tell you this, that when he played it that night, 
to watch the reaction because we lived in real time. There was no like streaming numbers, no analytics to see that shit jump off. I was like, Jesus Christ, this is a record. You know, you could see records go become like a thing right then and there. It was cool. And what was, was, what was Latin Quarter like? Dangerous. You know, I'm sure Search talked about it for seven years. You know, um, it was dangerous, man. It was the, it was a great club, though, man. Great music, amazing dances, dancers. Dudes were like, break dancing's over. There's this new vocabulary of dancing that these guys are doing, JAC and IOU dancers, like you've never seen this kind of dancing before. It's like some other shit beyond breaking. That And, and you know, you're seeing, it's like Birdland. You're seeing like... History in the making. Yeah, you're seeing like, you know, there's Miles and Mingus and these cats are Birdland, so I'm seeing Big Daddy Kane and Biz Marquee, and, you know, it's like, Jesus fucking Christ. Do you feel that in the time? I feel it's exciting and amazing. I don't know if I'm conscious that it's history in the making, but it is, at, you know, because I'm in the moment, right? And at that age, you're in the moment a lot more, but I know it's incredible. And your dad is this crazy jazz. My dad is a fucking nut job. He's crazy jazz, bohemian, weird ass dude. Did he know? What was happening on your end? He, he had, wasn't he tuned in yet. He knew I was in the music business, but he didn't know. What, because what, it is exactly like you described, it though. It's like it's like Birdland. But and, my, and my dad knows this later on in life when we talk. But at the point, at that point in time, our relationship was was cool. But we, you know, we weren't having the philosophical discussions yet. The most incredible thing about hip hop is it's postmodern art with the with the grooviest fucking shit in the world. It's all these references, especially with sampling. Right, because it's a collage. It's, it's, you know, it's a cultural collage. It's like a rock record and a jazz horn and a, you know, funky ass bass line and some drums could be from anything. It's like it's a hodgepodge. And it triggers nostalgia to the listener and it gives you something right. new. So it right. hits you in all these different emotional right. ways. I mean, that song talking all that jazz, maybe the first thing to voice that, that kind of sentiment, right? With James was old until Eric and B made you got soul, right? You know, so it was like, that's basically it in a nutshell. Like they brought back all this like stuff that was, wasn't there. And, you know, sampling her that music's way funkier and more soulful than the stuff that came before it to me well it's because they took the most funky shit they of take course. james brown right. and they take those records right it doesn't get funkier than right. that so how could it have ever right. been funkier right. right cool in the gang or jazzy records whatever it is mr magic by grover washington meters well you know all this stuff is like you know it's next level it's and, amazing and, and it's like it's weird because i mean you know in the older people like that's not music I mean, I feel like you were in the final frontier of something amazing and new. And this is fucked up because I've heard you talk about it in a negative way. And it, it impacted me and my friends in, in the most positive way when Dela calls you a scrub I, on the record. It's okay. Me and my friends d- took on Scrubby. I, I we, we we all say that we're Scrubby. We, we, I came we up with it, Scrub it, Life Records. We were going to do a, this thing. Also, you know, I was like, a, I played a lot of sports. And if you suck, you get called a scrub. That's where it comes from. Right, right. And we that's how thats how bad our self-esteem was, that we liked being called a scrub. I, I don't know if I liked it too much. You but, didn't like it, but, but we the, loved it. In retrospect, like, that's eh, something. It don't bother me anymore. I loved it when they said, hey, you fucking scongealy head. I like when they said, and you're not getting a haircut either. Right. When Pa said that. Amazing. Because I'd always bother Dave to give me a haircut. They, they obviously loved you. Ah, we still love each other. It's a love fest. Those guys, they're always on my gram, back and forth. I saw, I went to the... You know, I went to the thing at West Row. I flew in. I wasn't going to go. And I was in L.A. And I was with my girl. And she was like, what's going on? She got, I had a weird look on my face. I was like, I don't know, man. I think I should go to this thing at, in New York for Web Store. She's like, duh. She's like, of course. You're going to regret it forever if you don't go. So I got a ticket. And I went. And I got to tell you, if I hadn't gone, 
I'd be kicking myself. It was a spiritual experience, very emotional, but super positive. And it was like, I didn't go to college. I went to hip hop. And that was my like college reunion. Big time. You know, but, but it's one. also the fu- a funeral in a way. It was, it was bittersweet. A memorial. It was bittersweet, you know, but it was celebratory. It wasn't, it wasn't sad. And I got to watch the show. Like Latifah's like, like this with me watching the show. You know, it's like one of those things. Like, it's just, I can't explain it. And to be, and I got to bring Monica Lynch with me. We had to like extra VIP, do whatever you want pass. Uh, so I took Monica with me because she didn't know how she was going to get in. Called Stretch Armstrong. He's like, I got you guys. So I get to take my mentor and we get to celebrate with our our peers, our friends. And and um, we get to celebrate Dave. It was beautiful. Like I said to someone recently, if I could write my book over and end it, like and rewrite it, the epilogue, it would end there. I would have that in there. So if I do a second edition, I'm going to probably do that. Well, that makes sense. And I think I'm doing a second edition. They it, said I'm going to do one. It's also just so much love. I mean, Dela and Dela is love. Like Dela's whole thing. Dela is love. It, it's like it's it's ridiculous. And you went on after that. Like you basically were either A and R or producing every record that I lived on in high school. You, you know, fucking uh, Leaders of the New School, yeah. Brand Nubian. I That's mean, the one. That's the one that I really loved. You know, I moonwalked out of Tommy Boy. They didn't want to pay me. Like Tom Silverman, he was like, you know, cheap guy. So I moonwalked over to Electra. A guy named two people, Tim Carr, rest in peace. He tried to hire me at Colum- at Capitol. He had signed the Beastie Boys. He stole them from Def Jam like a thief in the night. And he hit me to what I could make. When he made an offer, I was like, oh, I can make that much money here. And I sang on Russell one night. And he's like, yo, man, you brought you brought that shit back to life over Tommy Boy. What you know, what are they paying you? And I told him $31,000 a year, I think. And he, he was like, you're a dumb motherfucker. And then he offered me a job for forty something, and I, I got offered sixty something by Tim, and I got a lawyer, and he threw the rod out there to see because he told me, I don't think you want that job at Capital. I said why? I said, I don't know how long Tim Carr will be there, and he wasn't there that long. BC Boys record comes out, comes out, and bye bye Tim. So I, I met this guy Bob Kras now, at Electra. He was the president. He was a, he was a very very fly individual, very charismatic. Could tell he had been through some things. He was kind of tough guy. He had a thing about him. I liked him. He had a beautiful diamond ring on. I had a three finger ring on. I tried to swap. He, he didn't go for the swap, but, but he, he liked, liked the offer. Ring. Right. He liked my ring. Right. Guy had a lot of. Th- he had a thing to him. He, I think he saw some of himself in me, and he he paid me more than anyone else was going to pay me. And I went to work at Electric Records. A guy named Raul Roach was very instrumental in all this. Max Roach's son. Exactly, and he's. So the Max Roach thing too, my dad's it's a jazz so cool, guy. Yeah. Just the whole thing, it I made know. sense. And and Latifah had come through Tommy Boy. I and saw. and that and that was like that's why your book I mean, I think you write it beautifully, but just for me, I was like fifteen, sixteen, Yo, whatever. She was a star from day one. She walked in the office and she's a star. And and all that the dance hall influence you yeah, and I and I love and I love all that. Me you know, too. Li- you know, I love dance hall. I'm listening to Sugar Minot and all the things that are popping back then. Papa Mr. Smiley. DC. Yeah, yeah, that's the song. Yeah, yeah, that's so the song. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm listening to all that. Like, I'm in that. You know, like. Me I, too. It's weird, though. I remember when I was a kid and I see. Barrington Levy. But One I saw, love. like, musical youth when I'm, like, a kid. I love that. That was great. I, it's something that I Dutch. knew it. I knew that for some reason I was fucking connected to that music. I mean, you know, Red Alert started every show with, like, four or five dancehall records. He might play One Blood by, like, you know, yeah. by, by fucking Junior Reed. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, all those records. He's playing those records. So I, we. 
Reggae and hip hop was right side by side. It's like early dancehall. As dancehall rock, it's going from rockers to dancehall. And um, I'm loving these records. Murderer by Barrington Levy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. listening to fucking Supercat. Stand, Standing in the Way by fucking, you know, by like Frankie, by um, Barris Hammond or Warriors to Dance, Frankie Paul. So I'm into all this stuff. And and um, she had that, you know, so I love that. That was, you know, beautiful. I, and if, if you ever in my house, I really don't play much hip hop. I play a lot of dancehall. I play dancehall and jazz at home a lot. I, I I grew up going to see this live dancehall group, uh, Skinanks. I know them dudes. And KRS wanted yeah. sign Rocker T. Yeah, yeah, I know. He I know did Rocker T Toby. did a dopey theme song at Toby Sorensen. I know him, and I know um. Why did they fail so badly? I don't think I don't know. They didn't have it, but live in Tompkins Square Park, they're always amazing. I, I love Ricky, who was in the band. The Ricky Tepperberg, it's my man. Yeah, yeah, it's my yeah, man. Yeah, Fifty yeah. grand. I know yeah, yeah. some kids. Yeah, sick. I knew them all. Jamalski. They were all like Jamalski. They're younger than me. Those guys. You know, Dollar I, Man. I know all those guys. Yeah, yeah, those yeah, guys yeah, were cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's where I, I would go. I mean, I would get stoned and go out and see that. And like, I, we were like, holy wetlands. shit. Wetlands. Yeah, wetlands. Or lions Den. Fucking Lions Den or the one on the east side. I forgot what it was. Where Blues Traveling them all played. Nightingales. Nightingales. We live for that shit. Right. But uh, but we knew the dude in, in one of the bands, either Spin Doctor. I think Spin Doctor's Brendan, the guitar player. He was like went out with some girl we know. And we were like, he's a hippie. I grew up playing in ska bands, so I would see all those. Like, but we were interested. So in I was the, in a the ska boy stuff. before. I, like I was maybe my entry drug to punk rock. I think before I went full. Not not. I was in a punk, but I definitely had a flat top and a. Fred Perry and like a mohair. Well, what were you listening to? I was in specials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in specials. Terry yeah. Hall just died. Yeah, I love Terry Hall. Amazing. I cried when he died, to be honest. Specials, Madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. English um, Beat. English Beat, you know, Selector. And then all those old Jamaican Scott records. That. And, you know, I found that stuff afterwards, though. Me too. I, I went backwards. Of course. I saw the specials at Diplomat Hotel. I saw them at uh, Haraz. I saw them at the uh, Pier. All before the and Irving Plaza, I saw them four times when I was a kid. Amazing, I loved them. They were a tremendous band. One of my, I loved UB40 too. Early UB40, great interracial bands. Great the band. specials, man. You know about interracial bands? That's when I'm looking for funk breaks. I always, if it's an interracial band, I always buy it. Right. That's my so interracial funk and sky is always pretty good. Sly and the Family Stone, right? All of it, right? Mandrill. Mandrill, like yeah. you know, it's like Simonde was a fucking sick band, but they're all black. But they they get a pass. They're, great. they're, they're so amazing. good. So anyway, fucking you hit up, uh, you, you stumble into Brand Nubian, Grand Pooba. He comes five percent kingdom. I want Pooba to produce Latifa. He never shows up. Mm. When he shows up, he plays me Brand Nubian's demo. I'm already halfway out the door. I say, come with me. He says, okay. Uh, what are you gonna do for me? I'll pay you more money. Pooba cares about money a lot. He says, okay. I sign him to to lecture. He was so skillful. You, you describe him as uh, short money motivated. Short short money. He didn't believe in himself in the proper way. I don't know if that's true. He didn't respect his art enough. I always look at Brand Nubian and I'm like, yo, they're so amazing. But the way that Tribe and Daylight protected their brand was so mm. much better. Yeah. You know what I mean? And these dudes should have held it down a little more. And I blame I blame Pooba for the most part for it because he's the center of it all and they can't really do it without him. So, you know... And they're great without him because they're they're in God we trust without him is a fantastic album, but he's so integral to it. Like it's like the Bad Brains with that HR. Sure. And it's just like yeah, he he's such a talent. What an amazing artist. And and what a you know he just he he didn't have anyone. You know it's not he wouldn't have listened to anyone. He just did things the way he did. He had his own reasons. I don't want to like badmouth him. I love the guy. He's kind of mad at me. I think I he perceives some of the things I said as badmouthing him. But he's one of the most talented guys I've ever worked with. And unfortunately, 
it went the way it went. Incredible MC. I heard one of the best. He's playing Blue Note next week with Lettuce, like at some that, big fucking so show. Make sure he shows up on time. He won't. Make sure he gets no there. Can do that. All the hippies are worried already. They read they your book and they're like fucking Grand Poobas. And I know the dude come. Eric in Lettuce. Do you think? Do you think they're counting on that he'll actually show up? He'll show up because they have money for him. But just very. Oh, he'll show up just to get the money. I of hear course. You. Okay, so fucking. And how how is your drinking and 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 drug use in that period? I smoke weed like a madman. I definitely drank a lot. I've never been able to have one drink my whole life. So I'm an alcoholic. Right. You know. It's, in, it's inherent in my DNA, I think. So, you know, I was always a, a functioning alcoholic, which is almost the worst kind because you're functioning. You don't have, you don't, where's the bottom? How do you recognize it? Hey, I got hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank. I own a house. I got this, that, the other. How do you recognize you're an alcoholic? How do you? You fucking have something tragic happen. Got to hit your bottom. I had an emotional bottom. I stole the house. I sold some money in the bank. I owed the IRS $180,000 and I didn't know what I was going to do. I talked to a few friends and I, I got sober. My little sister, who I love, told me I needed help. I listened to her and I reached out to a couple of people. My friend Dennis was my Eskimo. DJ AM had tried to get me sober before he planted a seed. My friend Andy Kessel, they both passed before I got sober. But those guys are my spiritual Eskimos. My friend Dennis McNett was my Eskimo. And I ended up walking in the, the rooms like, you know, you don't look, man, no, no one walks in like, with their chest puffed out to AA. No one's going to walk into a 12-step program like, I just won the Super Bowl. I hit the lotto. Like, she doesn't work like that. I crawled into the rooms of AA. First meeting I ever went to, this cat named Mark was there. I, kn- I knew him a little bit from there, but I see him around. or say hello to him. And he was there, and he gave me this piece of a very affable person. Has a million-dollar smile. He gave me a big smile and a hug. Asked me, how are you, how you doing? I said, I'm fucked. He said, come sit down sat down he sat next to me the woman who qualified i always remember this and then i seen her in la she lives there now and i told her this and she started crying so i hadn't seen her for 10 years she said to the newcomer have faith that you're not here by accident she said turn your fear into faith because the window of grace has opened for you and grab that thing and hold on and i was like stuck in my head i always remember that so I think that was God. Like, I, I'm so, my notion of God is so abstract. I don't believe in, like, the mystery God. I'm, I'm damaged by Christianity. But, you know, like, I came back the next day. I seen an old friend of mine. He said, oh, we've been saving the seat for you for years. I said, go fuck yourself. Right, of course. Right? Um, I didn't even know what that meant. And um, It was a spiritual bottom, though. A spiritual, emotional bottom. Let me ask you this real quick. In between all that, you know, stuff. my father had died, so you know, I was in. A, and you were so close with your dad, yeah. And I was with him a lot when he died, and I'd blown my career kind of, and you know, I drank away a bunch of money, and I was in. I had a terrible breakup with this young woman that I would have never been with if I was sober. I was only with her because she was like a shiny prize. How do you think you blew your career? I'm, I mean, I didn't have a job, so I blew my career. I wasn't working like that, and I um. I was difficult. I was deemed difficult, you know? And I was difficult. And do you think alcohol played a big part in that? Of course. And weed or mostly alcohol? Both. Alcoholic behavior, two hours late for everything. Right. You know, smelling like a bong, like all that. It all played in everything. I was indulging everything to escape the reality of where I was. Look, I'm a fearless dude, like, or I thought I was. I fight anyone, win, lose, don't give a fuck. I'll tell you to go fuck yourself. Um, I'm not scared of much. I've had guns in my face. I got a gun put in my face and I was like, yo, my man, like, I want to shatter your illusion. That ain't the first time that shit happened. And this dude was like, yo, you, 
yo, you're a crazy motherfucker. And I was like, maybe. I said, but if you're going to shoot me, shoot me in the back. And I walked away from the dude, right? So I'm pretty fearless, but I was always scared of dealing with myself. Right. Right? That's really scary. So I got sober and I had to be accountable first and foremost to myself, then to others. You, uh, I mean, the list is two, is, I'm just going to go through it real quick. Okay. Fucking Pete Rock and CL Smooth. Pete Rock, love them. Fucking, that, that. Genius. I mean, when I'm listening to the book, I'm like playing track after track. Of course, and and rightfully so. Leaders of the new school. Leaders of the new school were like always going to disintegrate. It was They're disappointing. It was volatile. They were just disappointing as a rap fan because you want them to be Tribe, De La, and Leaders. You know, there were a few rap groups better live than on record. Right. That never happens. Only the Beastie Boys and maybe Cypress Hill. Have ha, are that right? Beastie Boys live are so good. They're great on records. Cypress Hill so good live. They're great on records. Lose New School so good live. Not good on records. First record's cool. Just, Second record's just another confusing. case of that old PTA. That was, was good. That was a good song. That, that, that first it. album was cool. It was like almost. It was like very good, not great. Three and a half stars. And Bust On scenario made it. And made Buster, it, made it. and that's the best and worst thing that ever happened to them. They have all this fucking tension. The first record under cheese, but everyone loves them. All their peers. Buster gets the fucking crazy assist from tips like, take that. He kills it, becomes bigger than the group. They all, they're already tensions. They ratchet up. In a way, Bust On Scenario is bigger than Tribe or. Yes, leaders. he's by far the best person on that record. Everyone knows it. Tip would tell you that. As I combine, I mean, it's like, come on, it's one of the greatest. How many times you go to a club and you only hear that verse? It's ridiculous. Right? So ridiculous. You know, it's the best. It's a gift in the So curse. What, what is it like to be in that? Terrible. It's fucking horrible. It's like being in a bad marriage. Fucking bad. And I'm the bad guy no matter what I do, except to Buster. Right. Because Buster knows I love him. And he knows I'm going to hold him down. He knows I got a record deal for him. Whatever happens, I got you right here. I know you're a star. Me and your man, Chris Lighty, got this for you right here. Like, we got you. And me and Buster always had a closer relationship than me and the rest of them. Charlie Brown would drive me crazy. The other two guys, cool. Never really had problems with them. And me and Bus was always, you know, we always had a deep relationship. That's my little bro. He calls me big bro. He's on my Instagram every all the time. He hits me all the time out of nowhere. Randos just ask me funny shit or come to the studio and kidnaps me to play me music for like a whole day. He's, he's, um, we have a very special relationship. I don't see it ever dissipating. And, um, look, it's called the music business. Because it's a business. 100%. And sometimes business will dictate how you treat certain people. Buster was an important artist and I treated him really well for being an important artist. Now, what about the fact that like you're half Jewish? There's two things. I'll say this too. Please. You have a great artist. You're always going to give them more leeway. But if you really like somebody, you're also always going to go the extra mile for them. So Sadat X, Lord Jamar, MF Doom, I always go the extra mile for these people. They were cool people. Dell, because I love them. Right. Charlie Brown, who drives me fucking crazy. Good luck. He seemed like he was a difficult person, even I, without I mean, reading the book. I think chemically imbalanced. He was not likable the way all the other people you just mentioned. I mean, were. look, Chris Lighty, rest in peace, said to me one day we were hanging out, and someone said to me and him, what if happened to Charlie Brown? And Chris Lighty said, he's an asshole. And, you know, sorry, Brown. Look, I want to dump on you. I'm sure he listens to Dopey. Life too. is very long, and I'm sure you're a different person now, and I hope you're well. You know, water under the bridge, and I hope you're well. How is it to be white, half Jewish, and working with all these five percenters? Didn't mean nothing. Jews were pretty ubiquitous in the world of yeah, hip hop. It doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. And I think most white guys in hip hop were Jewish. Didn't mean anything because I think 
uh, you know, real recognized, real people. All, we have the same cultural references. I'm not an illusionist. I don't believe that everything's ubiquitous in this world. I'm pretty vocal about that. I recognize white privilege. I've been granted white privilege. My job as someone who's an evolved person, um, who's relatively fearless talking about race is to call out white privilege. I'm more aware of it now than ever. Um, but, but, you know, I'm not, a, uh, you know, I come from a long line of activists, like my, my pops is friends with Stokely Carmichael and Bobby Seale. Like I was around the movement as a child. I was raised to think the Black Panthers are heroic. They are heroic. For sure. And Malcolm X. And these are my heroes. And Superfly and Shaft and George Clinton and Donny Hathaway and Marvin Gaye and, you know, all that too. So, you know, to me, like the Black Panthers and like George Clinton and Shaft, like all that shit is one thing to me in a weird way. And, um, you know, that's that for me is what I grew up feeling like black culture, black excellence was. It was all these wonderful, fucking artistic, beautiful things. So I kind of tried to find that when I was looking for groups to sign. I wanted to have a lineage that reflected what I was influenced by. And Bruce Lee, I'll put Bruce Lee in there too. He was a huge influence on me as a kid and a couple other things. But, you know, my heroes, a lot of my heroes weren't, Clint Eastwood wasn't my hero. You know, that's not, that wasn't heroic. Dirty Harry wasn't my hero. Elvis wasn't your hero. No, man. But, George Clinton was my hero. But because New Yorkers get down like that, like you can be cool and be white or be black or whatever. You know, it's like we yeah, live in the like same a, building. It's and like, I got, right. We are, we're a vertical city. You said it all. We live in the same building. Right. Exactly. That's, that's the beauty. It's, you know, if you're a racist in New York, move to Long Island. You ain't going Now live. I live in Long Island. Uh, well, Hold on. But I don't want to rush you through it because you're going to have to go. Matt Dyke. Love what him. the fucking hap? What's the deal with Matt Dyke? Matt Dyke's a Phil Spector of hip hop, but a crazy heroin addict, right? Phil Spector of hip hop. What's the story there? He he was uber successful. Delicious super, vinyl. Delicious vinyl. Hunter at Young MC. Super cool dude. Tone Loke. Mad good looking. You want to just be in his aura because girls just add him. You, I just want to hang out with Matt. He got it going on, right? He's fly. He's a fly dude. He's cool. He's funny. He's a stoner. Got a great sense of humor. Laid back dude. And I, I think it just all happened real quick. And like, look, he's nothing like Old Dirty Bastard, but him and Old Dirty Bastard both not prepared for fame and fortune. So when it hit him, he, he fell victim to temptations. And he dived into a bag of drugs and he went, he went you know, reclusive and he had all these Basquiat's. Yeah, they had found 18 million worth of baskets. Right, he could just house. sell a painting and have a couple million just get high for the rest of his life, and that's what he did. That's what he did. Yeah. And Ace on Unique. How did, how did he fall in your lap? He didn't necessarily fall in my lap. So Matty C worked aloud. He was working at the Matty source. C. He put the Wu-Tang Clan in the singles file. Um, he wrote Unsigned Hype. He was going to take a job at Loud. Me and him taking the train to my house, watch basketball. After work, came to my office. I tried to give him a job. I tried to give him a job. And I said, yo, can you type? He looked at me crazy. So he worked at the source. He looked at me like, he, I was with him Saturday. So this, he reminded me of this. He looked at me like, and he's like, I'm going to take this job at Loud. I don't have to type. <laughs> he didn't say that, but that was the vibe. We went to my house to watch the Knicks in the playoffs and smoke some weed. And we're on the tr taking the train there. And he said, no, all the Wu-Tang Clan is available for deals. I said, what do you mean? Well, they're signing a Loud, but I think the deal they're doing, they're all available. So I said, bong, bong, ding. That week, Dirty's on, Stretch, and Bob. I'm listening, 1 o'clock Thursday. Maybe it's 2 o'clock. I came home. I was half drunk or something. And I was like, oh, my God. And I heard him do basically all the rhymes unbeknownst to me that were on the first album because he never wrote. <laughs> Rizzo wrote all of it? No, Rizzo didn't write any of it. I think his brother, 12 o'clock, who passed away, 
maybe 62nd, Assassin, and Jizza, and others. I don't know. Um, as Jizza told me, I might have wrote it, but I didn't say it like that. Right, right. It's a, it, those, those rhymes, I wrote them, but those are his. Right. So I ran up there to see him. Rizzo was there. He knew who I was. I set up a meeting with him. He flaked out on me. The next day, he didn't call me. He called me the next Monday. Came to see me with, I want to say, Inspector Deck, maybe the only time I ever met him. Mookie, Divine, Dirty. Oh, when I saw him, when I met him at Stretch and Bob, I said, yo, I'm going to sign Method Man and Dirty. That's the new EPMD. That's the new Run DMC. He was like, yo, that's an ill thought. Came to his office. I said, yo, where's Method Man? He said, yo. I said, yo, you know I'm trying to sign him. That's the duo of the future. You had a grandiose notion. I said, this, this is the new Run DMC. And he said, yo, that's an ill thought, but I'm not doing that. Method Man's going to go over there with Russell. But he said, but. He said, I, you got all the gods? I'm going to play a song with the gods. And he said, I'm going to give you the first gold record you ever had at Electra. And he did. So he, he gives you ODB because you had Brand Nubian. You had Pretty all these much. 5%ers. Pretty you much. had Busta. Doom. And Doom. Pretty much. I think CL might have been a god too. How and how? Uh, fucking Pete Rock and CL Smooth. That CL record. Smooth, he's talking about you know a lot of mech. It's mech in the soul, bro. Right. So, you know. I mean, look, I had a, I had a god a god body friendly little roster and he put a song with me and and no one ever said devil tree shit to you ever what's eh, you know like brand new just bust my balls in the beginning alamo but you know sometimes you got to prove yourself like trust trust is earned never given right hell's angel shit right, i mean right, that kind right. of applied to those dudes so you know man that's just part of it it's like when i was a kid i go to the boys club i'm boxing dudes trying me really hard then I'm kind of nice. And then they're like, okay, okay. he's kind of nice. Right, right. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like one of them things. You got to prove yourself. So It's the same thing. And, and you have built up the skill set. Yeah, it's like my life. That's like this part of it. And I get it. Like that's, well, what the fuck? Who cares? That's, it's nothing. And you describe uh, MF Doom and his brother gobbling up psychedelics. Later on. Were you yeah. gobbling psychedelics nah, with nah, them? my psychedelics. I was done with all the psychedelics by my, not all of them, but. Certainly acid by my early 20s, late teens. I took a ton of acid in high school. Like, I, I saw the bad brains on acid before. <laughs> I went to see Husker do on acid and did a backflip. I did a, a front flip, and I landed all the way over where my, my legs, my feet landed on someone's head type shit. Like, I was like, so I had done a lot of acid, a lot of psychedelics. So I was over. I, I have eaten mushrooms many times since then, but nah, that was, that was on their second album. And they, um, Subrock had a crazy experience. He gave away all this money. He thought he was like, he had a time machine. He'd go back and get it. And a couple of days later, he when I talking about it, he didn't really care. He was like, fuck it. It's in the wind. Like, just had a great attitude about it. It was kind of wild. I was like, he might become one of those acid casualty dudes, you know, because we'd see them too. It's in the village who took too much acid and never sure. came back. They're like, yeah. Walking around holding their mom's hand or some shit. You know, like Sid Barrett. Right. Like one of them dudes. And I had this dude, Sammy, from my neighborhood who that happened to. Um, but, you know, he was fine. Like, you know, and, and, he he was crossing the LARR, I think after after maybe a rough night, a long night, coming back from from his man's house in the Heights, and uh, he got hit by a car and got killed. Long Island Expressway. Yeah, yeah, it's and, It's fucking uh, horrible, and then and that affected Doom horribly because they were so tight. Yeah, Doom, but Doom was stoic, and he's like, "I'm gonna finish the record." He went to finish Black Bastards, turned it in. It was amazing. The artwork was a continuation of the artwork he had created for KMD. He always did his own artwork, the logo. It was called Black Bastards. It was a childhood game hangman. He's killing himself. We um, submit the artwork. No one, uh, no one objects. And we didn't even, it wasn't even an issue. 
got mastering set up, mastered the record, end of the end of the year, top of the year rolls around, we're getting ready to roll it out. And a woman named Terry Rossi from Billboard Trade Magazine called Monday Morning Monitor attacks the record, says it's racist, irresponsible, have like Nelson, who writes for Billboard, my friend does the same thing. No one ever talks to me or Doom about any of it. And all of a sudden he is in the fire and eventually is thrown to the wolves and he loses his record deal and he, he does get in advance of $20,000, but this is a guy who just lost his brother and he's blackballed. No one will give him a record deal because Faith Newman wanted to sign him at Columbia and he was, she was not allowed to. So he goes underground and then he reemerges as MF Doom, right? And it's very Faustian, if you know the story of Faust, it's like the Phantom of the Opera, which is what Dr. What, what, you know, Dr. Doom is based on in the Fantastic Four. I don't know if Doom was cognizant of this then, but he's- I wonder though, it's so brilliant. He minds Dr. Doom's story and- um, He doesn't even show up to the shows. He has his man Ben Klingon or various others show up. That's Doom for you with the- With the mask. Always, a, an, always down for the mind fuckery. That's part of his thing. I went to see him one time in Philly. I was at the side of the stage and he pulled up next to me and he, I started laughing because Ben was on stage being him. He's a wild dude, man. He was a great person. V- really funny. I, I reconnected with him a couple years before he died. He would Skype me and have the mask on. I'd be like, take that shit off. He's like, make sure no one's in the room. You know? <laughs> no one's in the room. And yo, man, he was fantastic. I love him. I'm honored to work with the estate with Sadiq and and those guys. And I love him. I'm doing like, it's a little hard to talk about him. It's like, still like raw. It's, sad. it's, it's one of the things horrible. I like. A, you know, like I lost my two partners, SD50 guys, Gibby Dijani, John Gamble, MF Doom, Keith Huffnagel, and my godfather all in a row. Like pandemic year, you know, it was a lot of death, man. It's like, it was a whole lot for me to work through. And um, Doom was on some levels, him and Gamble right next to each other with my godfather, very hard to deal with. Uh, it was a whole lot. My last communication with Doom was sending him a picture of Subrock, Gibby, Doom, and Gamble. Oh my God. And he, he. Because they had all just died. Well, Doom was still alive. Right. And I said, yo, so once you know Gam's passed. And he was like, damn, Unc. He died like two weeks later. I didn't know he died to January. How did he die? He had liver disease, liver failure. Related to alcoholism? I don't, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But he died very young. Died young. 52? Something like that. Yeah. And then you, I mean, one of the most amazing things is, is the level of artistry in your artists, mm. you know, like, like from De La to Doom and then the Hyro guys, Domino, fucking Dell, Souls oh, of Mischief. I lived on Souls of Mischief. I can't believe I didn't sign him. I'm so mad. I let that go. Did you have, what was that? That was, that was mine. I, and I gave it to Stretch and them. I gave it to Stretch. He was working at Bigby, him and my man, Daddy Reef. And they were like my really good friends. And I wanted to see them hit one. And we went to Oakland. We went to a Gavin and I put them together and they rapped. They were rapping, so freestyling. They were killing it with organized confusion. And then me and, I think it was me and Reef or maybe me and Stretch went out to Oakland. And I was like, yo, that's you. Like, you guys, like, bow. Just how Maddie gave me Wu-Tang. I said, bow, take that. Right. And Jive swooped in and got him. And I was tight because if I knew that was going to happen, I would have signed him. But I wanted to put my boys on and it didn't work out. Um, but I remained super tight with them. I introduced Domino to them. Dell is like my little brother. I have like, I just, I haven't been making rap beats forever, but I found an old rap beat and I sent it to Dell and he did it for me recently. It's really fucking cool. It's super bugged out. 
I'm going to put out a record that's all these things I had sitting in a vault. Definitely do. I'm it. doing it. It's done. 16 songs, Son of the City, the record. That's a great idea. I'm and then what, what was the story with uh, almost getting killed with A-plus and Domino? Yeah, it, was, it was Domino and Tajay Most It was all of us, though, except Dell. We were in San Francisco at this club off Market Street called The Upper Room, I think. And I think that was called. It was on top of McDonald's. And we went in there. We're hanging out. And souls were, like, popping. And I was like, we had bad vibes. All the girls were, like, hollering at us. And I was like, I had, like, a brightling on, like, a chain, like, big earrings. And we were with Saphir, too, and he was showing out, too. And we went in the parking lot to smoke. Couldn't smoke in the club. Some dude just rolled up on us, jumped out of a van. A little dude pulled out a big-ass gun. And he was like, it was just like Menace Society had just come out, and Saphir was with us. It was, like, surreal. He's like, break yourself. Yeah, he was like, he's like, this ain't no motherfucking joke, fool. <laughs> he's like, I'm, I'm jacking all of y'all. And I was like, bonk, bonk. I jetted, me and Tajay hit the land speed record. Heard a, heard a couple of shots fired. I thought Saphir got shot, maybe because he was cousin Harold and got killed. We hid like in a parking garage. We, we heard cop cars. We came out. We seen Saphir in a car. He drove by. He said, get in the fucking ride. I said, I thought you got shot. He said, Domino got shot. We went back there and Dom had powder burns on his face. But he was alive. I think that was karma. And I asked him, I said, yo, I heard, a, I heard three shots. I said, who's he? What were the other two shots? He said, he was shooting at you and Tajay because you guys ran first. And I, I was like, that's why I don't look back. But you know, it wasn't my first rodeo. I've been shot at before. So, you know, it happens. I have, I have good instincts. And um, Dom had powder burns on his face. But he was all right. It's a miracle. It's a, it's a miracle. miracle. That's his karma. That's a good ass dude. And that's what I told him. I said, you're here because you're a good person. I remember that. And then. I didn't want to be in San Francisco anymore. I wanted to go back the next day, but I stayed an extra day. But I wanted to go back to New York. And where were you when uh, Old Dirty died? I was in I was in Manhattan. I didn't go to the funeral. I should have gone. I didn't want to go though. Why? I don't know. I didn't want to have to call people to make sure I could walk right in. And I just want to. I don't know, man. I just didn't want to do it. I should have. In retrospect, how close were you guys? We were close, but not at the end. I hadn't talked to him in years. I seen him one time. He barely recognized who I was. He was like a vegetable. He was like. He was a mope. Catatonically on drugs. He was just a mope. He was like on probably psychotropics. He wasn't doing good. Right. He was fucked up. He was bad. He was in bad shape. And um, Buddha was like, yo, that's Dante. He's like, oh, shit. Right, right. You look different. Like like Sarah I got in really good shape at that point. And I guess I was was a lot thinner. And when he had worked together, he was like, yo, you look look ill. You look healthy. It was like weird. And I, I had I never saw him again. But I stayed I'm friends with Isoline and I work with the estate. I'm a producer on this old dirty bastard movie that comes out a doc that comes out in August for A and E with Sam Pollard and Jason Pollard and the estate with Isoline and Messiah Jacobs and, and all these guys. So yeah, I mean I and I did like a couple of apparel collaborations for the family. I made them some bread and That's cool. I don't know, man. I love I love Dirty and um he's like that's maybe the like if I die tomorrow, that's the record I get most remembered for. Yeah, more than three feet high and rising. Think so. Well, it's a great record either way. And you're fucking building and building and building, dipping and growing, growing and dipping, fucking drinking and smoking, and then fucking and had a problem with my hands that would always get me in bigger problems. Fighting, you mean? Was right. that where the where the the puff daddy fight was around then? Yeah. Well, how did that one happen? And then my man had a problem over a girl, and shit escalated, and it was gonna happen, and then 
I was there when it was going to happen, and they were about to size my man up, and me and my friends wasn't going to have it. So we just got into it. No big deal. I love Puff. He's great. He's genius, right? Genius and a nice guy. Fucking. And Sometimes ha- you have to get in a fight with some, somebody to respect him more. It was one of those. Well, it worked out. And you're, and you're at the top of your game in terms of, you know, you win a Grammy, you're fucking making more money than you ever made. You're on another level. I got more gold chains than ever. Did you? Oh, yeah, man. You're, was, you're you're drowning in gold. I was swanky. Were people like begging you to produce shit? Yeah, that. And I was like hanging out with like all these wild ass people, like semi-famous, famous people and hanging out with all these like model type girls and just all this shit. And I, I was just fucking living the life. I was like a, doing a little too much, to be honest. So what's the precursor to the bottom? Because that's the top. And the bottom is 10 the years The bottom out. is like work dries up around 2005 and- I'm this guy who used to be important and that's so painful. I'm probably. acting like I'm, I'm like, don't you know who I used to be? Oh, right. That guy. And, right. And, um, it shit is shitty. You know, I'm, I'm fucking, I get a job here, a job there, but it's like pretty shitty. Um, but I still got some money and I'm out every night doing wild shit. It's out all the time, but it's just drinking and it's wearing you thin smoking, drinking, doing the wrong shit. What was your first day sober? May 9th, 2011. And how, do you, how well do you remember it? Like, what was like, May 10th like? I remember perfect. I what was remember. May 10th like? So my first day sober was May 7th. Then May 8th, I smoked weed. I didn't know you couldn't do that. And then May 9th, I went back to the meeting. And my man was like, who? My man said, like, we got we had a chair for you forever. We had a seat for you forever. He said, oh, how you feeling that day? And I said, May, on May 8th, I said, um, I can't sleep. He said, yeah, that'll happen to you. I'm probably detoxing. I said, fuck up, whatever, bro. So I went and smoked some weed that night. You slept. I was watching boxing with these girls, and I smoked some weed, and I slept. And they came, the next day I seen him. He said, yeah, you look like I'm asleep. I said, yeah, I did. I smoked a little weed. He said, start your day count again. And I was like, go fuck yourself. But I didn't know what a day count was. It's my ego speaking. So May 9th was my day count, and I stayed. I, oh, and I, I forgot to say this when I was getting near my 90 days. Was it 90 or 30? I think it was 90. I didn't want to reset my day count. Right. And I was like at like day 86 and I had to tell my sponsor, yo, I got to reset my day count. I really got 84 days. Like it matters. For right? but. Yeah. Cause you know, I was, I wasn't sober 84 days. And that's like, it's like everything at that point. Yeah. Cause it's like 10 got. years. That's and, all you got. Yeah. And you know, like there's also that California sober shit. I don't buy that. Either you're sober, you're not. There's no, no middle ground, no gray area. Either you're sober, you're not. So I've been sober ever since, you know, May 9th, 12 years and change. And I'm still sober. God bless. Well, listen, I can't tell you like what an honor it has been to go. I wish we had more time. I just got to Listen, go. you gave me tons of time. Okay. You didn't give me the four hours you gave H2O. Nah, that's uh, Toby Morris. It was Sunday and we like were, he had that the new hot, t- he had the fucking, he, he had like got a sauna. It was like a whole thing. All right, real experience. quick. You ready? Yeah. This or that? Uh, DJ Ralph McDaniel or Fab Five Freddy? Ralph McDaniel all day. John Joseph or Harley? John Joseph by a nudge. Rakim or Kane? Rakim. Uh, Mike D or Ad Rock? Mm, Ty. Mark Jackson or Rod Strickland? Rod Strick, all day. Okay. Fucking Stussy or Supreme? Mm, neither. Okay. Indica uh, or Sativa? Indica. Grand Pooba or Sadat X? Mm, Pooba as a rapper, Sadat X as a person. Uh, Rizza or Jizza? As an MC? Whatever you want. Sure. Jizza. Jizza as an MC, Rizza as a, as a visionary. Fucking Lil Dicky or Macklemore? Neither. Okay. 
Uh, Search or Pete Nice? Pete Nice. Sinister Prime Minister. Dr. Dre or Ed Lover? And I'm talking about fat Dr. Yeah, yeah. Dre. Um, I love them both. Tupac or Biggie? Biggie, come on. Tony Alva or Christian Hosoy? Christian Hosoy, because he's my guy. All right. Ghostface or Raekwon? Ghost. New York City or Los Angeles? New York all day. All right, dude. Thank you. You're the man. I really appreciate it. So that was Dante Ross. And obviously it's not like our normal wall-to-wall, crazy, fucked up, dopey kind of thing. It is different. I mean, Dante is an alcoholic. He's probably a drug addict. He's definitely in recovery. And I just love, I love his career. I love his music. And, and I love Dante now. Now that I've met Dante, I love Dante and felt very honored to have him on the show. Write an email. Tell me what you thought. I know it's not fucking turkey basting crystal or dropping suboxone in your eyes or whatever, but I don't think you get that kind of uh, hip-hop history coupled with a little bit of recovery and, um, and, and Mike D selling fucking coke. It's all in there. I'm incredibly, incredibly honored to have had him on. And if you were craving a little more dopey, I'm going to play a little voicemail from another incredible hip-hop luminary, the one and only Scott Wick from Pompano Beach. But before I do, I also want to mention to check out Recovery in the Middle Ages podcast with our friend Nat and Mike. And they tackle all sorts of recovery issues, including dopey, 12-step. They read books about recovery and addiction and talk about them. It is a great resource. It is like hanging out with more sober people. Check them out wherever you get your podcasts at Recovery in the Middle Ages. And here is Scott Wick. What's up, Dave? What's up, Dopey Nation? This is Scott Wick, and I have a copping story. Um, So the year is probably like 2015, 2016. Um, It's in Pompano Beach, so Fentanyl Jail will probably be able to relate to some of the areas that I'm talking about. Sounds like he used to do a lot of his running around on the northern part of Pompano, like in Sample Road and in Deerfield and shit. And I used to do most of my running around like uh, in the southern part of Pompano, like Atlantic and Dixie, Atlantic and Powerline and kind of around those areas. So I had a solid co-connect. But when he wouldn't answer or I couldn't get a hold of him or I owed him money or something, um, I would have these backup dudes that I would uh, call up. And one of the dudes was like this tall, slim Haitian cat. And, you know, he had like fucked up teeth and real messy hair. And um, he was he got good shit, but he was young and he didn't have a car. And it was just it was it was a pain in the ass to try to get shit from him. And anytime that I would call him, the first question would be, is are you on this side, which would be close to me or you on the other side? which I wasn't really allowed to go to this block that he's talking about, you know? So um, I call him up for the first time. He's like, yeah, come through. And I'm sure Dopey Nation can relate to this a lot. Um, You know, you're on the way there. You're thinking you're just going to cop and go. You get there, you give the dude the money, and then he hops in the car and he's like, yeah, you got to take me over here or over there. And you're like, fuck, man. Who knows what you can get into when that goes down, you know? So he gets in my car. He takes me to the quote unquote, the other side. And as we're pulling up, this block is like completely blocked by like a bunch of dudes. You know, it's just one of those places that you just, you can't even get onto the block. Like even cops don't go down this shit. There's no trap houses or nothing like that. Like this is more of a type of place 
that this is where the stash houses are. And you were just not allowed to go there. And But because I was with this dude, they let me in, but they were not happy about it. And they were like cursing this dude the fuck out and not happy that I was fucking there. And the place is like really, really fucking appealing. You know, like there's a bunch of dudes just chilling. They're on quad runners and fucking dirt bikes. And they got a bunch of cars with 30 inch rims. And they got one of those big ass like barbecue things going on, cooking food. There's like this lunch truck looking thing that's like got all clear walls and it's like on a trailer, but it's a barber shop, like a mobile barber shop. So they just got like their whole, their own little world going on, on this little third mile fucking block. And, um, so he parks me in front of an apartment building and he gets out. And as soon as he gets out, some, somebody pulls up right behind me, blocks me in. And there's a bunch of dudes in my fucking window and they're yelling at me and, you know, tell me what the fuck you doing over here, white boy and this and that. And I'm like, fuck. So I'm just texting this dude like, bro, please hurry the fuck up and get me the fuck out of here. So he finally comes back, shoes the dude, you know, shoes all the dudes off of my car, gets the guy from behind me out of the way and we're out. So now fast forward, I'm on a bender. It's Sunday morning. It's 7 a.m. You know, this is months later, and this is after I've copped from him a few times. I call him up. I pretty much wake the dude up, and and I'm like, yo, I'm trying to get a gram of Coke. And he's like, he's like, ah, nah, it's no good right now. And I'm like, come on, man. And I'm just trying to hustle, and, you know, I'll make it worth your while. And just telling him whatever he needs to hear to say come through. So finally, I get him to say come through. He goes, but I'm on the other side. And I'm like, fuck. And I'm like, am I going to be good over there? And he's like, mm, yeah, you should be all right. And I'm like, all right, fuck it. What's the worst can, that could happen? It's Sunday morning, you know? So he's like, come to the waiting room. And to those that don't know, the waiting room is just like a gas station or a place that a, a dealer is going to have you go wait for them to call you. And then they'll tell you where to meet up kind of last minute. And the reason why they do that is just to avoid you trying to set them up by the cops or you trying to rob them or whatever. Just like like a change of location type of situation, you know. So this waiting room is, to those that know Papano, is as soon as you get off 95 and you head east, it's the racetrack gas station on your left. So that's where I'm at. I finally get the call. And he's like, yeah, just come to the end of the block. And I'm like, oh, all right, cool. Like, I don't even have to drive down this fucking street, you know? So I go back in the neighborhood. I'm driving. I'm not going to get too specific, but go back in the neighborhood. I'm driving. I get to the cross street of where this block is. I make the turn. And now I'm just going super, super slow. And I'm probably about 300 yards away from where this fucking, you know, the block is. Um, hoping to time it out as I'm driving by, he's walking up, I can cop and go and just be out. And as I'm driving up, there's like this group of Haitian dudes, like kind of off to the side of the street, but there's two of them kind of in front of my car that are arguing, you know? And then out of nowhere, one of the dudes goes to the back of the pickup truck, grabs a shovel and just starts swinging it at the other dude, like viciously fucking swinging this shovel like, he didn't land any hits, but if he did, he would have killed this fucking guy. And before you know it, within fucking seconds, all of these dudes are fighting each other in front and around my fucking car. And they're fucking swinging the shovel. They're fucking throwing bottles, throwing rocks. Like, how my car didn't get fucked up 
is beyond me. But I am now in the middle of this like mini riot that's going on right in front of my fucking face. And I've completely forgot that I'm supposed, I'm just trying to get, I'm just trying to stay alive at this point. I completely forgot that I'm supposed to be meeting this dude to get a fucking bag, you know? And so as I'm like kind of creeping forward and I'm not, I don't want to lay on my horn cause I don't want to like draw attention to myself or anything. I'm just trying to get out of there and out of the corner of my eye, I see my dude white tee hands over his head, ducking and dodging punches, running towards my fucking car. I crack my window open. I put the money out. He throws the bag in. He runs off. I lay on my horn and I'm fucking out and I got my shit and I stayed alive somehow. Um, so that's my story. Um, it's just funny to me, like the, the type of risks that we put ourselves into, you know, just to get our fix and the type of situations that we put ourselves into. And I have to say, I do not miss that shit at all. And, uh, I got three years clean and dopey's a big part of that. So toodles for Chris, peace and love for Todd. Yo, Dave, play my shit, man. So that's Scott Wick. Expect, I mean... I keep telling you to expect Fentanyl J to return soon. He was supposed to come to my house um, two days ago to record. We were going to do it at 2.30, and then we were going to do it at 3. Then he disappeared, and I was like, did the cops get you? And, and he was just gone. And then he texted me that he had fallen asleep. And then he called me that he said he got drugged uh, when he went out drinking the night before. So look for Fentanyl J to return soon. Hopefully next week. Until then, have a glorious weekend. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Patreon Zoom is tomorrow, and which is Saturday, June 2nd? June 3rd. And fucking toodles for Chris. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious and it's just gotten me through some really hard times and though I'm not clean myself you know it gives me a lot of hope for the future um I really like Dave's song and I'm gonna do a little cover of it here on my banjo hope y'all don't mind too much I wrote a uh, third verse myself sorry about the poor quality it's just on my phone and, uh, sorry about the banjos Things hard to keep in tune. <clears throat> Wanna take a walk around the world? Wonder would it do me any good? Till I get some honey in my pockets, and I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. I wanna be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Wanna take a ride up in the sky Watch as airplanes just pass me by and I wanna see a Learjet liner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive I wanna be good so bad I wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad 
That desire's all I ever had In my burned out basement listening to the dopey show Home friends I had her on this little radio I keep checking on my pulse because it feels like I might die But the thought straightening up sounds so much better when you're high And I wanna be good so bad so good, so bad, so bad. I wanna be good, so bad. Bad desires, all I ever had. y'all hear this makes it through the uh, big inbox emails feel free to play a clip on the show if you want if not I know it kind of sucks alright I really appreciate it thanks y'all